Hey Russ, how's it going this week? Hey Mike, it's been a good week of music listening. All kinds of releases are coming out, just left and right, classical, jazz, yeah. uh, all kinds of things. It's hard to even keep up with what's coming out, so every day... I've been finding new things, and uh, we're going to get a lot of them right on the podcast here. Yeah, in fact, yeah, this week uh, a big truck uh, pulled up to my house and dumped a load of uh, CDs onto my front porch, and I'm still <laughs> sort of in the uh, process of bringing them into the house, and I need to get them all in before it rains. You've been a victim of the so-called uh, supply chain problems, I think. Yeah, Presto Music, they were holding on to several of my orders, and I was kind of wondering what happened. So I gave them a call and uh, canceled one or two items. And then suddenly they just sent all of – now they're sending all these um, boxes of CDs at the same time. Oh. <laughs> I'm just kind of overwhelmed now because I like oh. to you know, kind of get them all on the computer too so I can listen to them you know, outside and like, oh. around, but uh, you know, also on the home stereo as well. Yeah. So uh, it takes a lot of time to rip them all, though. Although I could just listen to them on Deezer, so that wouldn't be a problem. Hey, you can never have too much music. Uh, just yeah. that problem is not a problem. Yeah. One thing I want to mention, um, the remember the Yakko organ trio that we uh, reviewed? I think it was uh, two weeks ago. Oh, yeah, the uh, the Greek organ trio. Yeah, yeah, Yakovos Sim- Simeonidis. I actually bought that CD from Bandcamp, and uh, it arrived at my house with a nice uh, personal note from uh, Yakovos himself. Wow! So I wrote back to uh, you know the uh, him on Bandcamp and told him, hey, you know, I, I learned about this album because we talked about it on the podcast, and I sent him the link, and now he's um, he's responded to both of us, and um, it's kind of nice to um, you know be in touch with him. He, he's really friendly. Yeah, he uh, friended me, and I sent him a little message there too. And uh, yeah. of course, we put um, the studio video for one of his tunes on uh, our Facebook page, and uh, hopefully, some of his fans will check out our podcast, and we'll get him some more listeners because that was a really fun recording. And we love organ trio. I'm, whenever I see a new organ trio recording, I say, "Oh, I'm going to put it right on the list to uh, check out." So I was glad that I caught that one, and uh, it was interesting to. You know, have a Greek uh, group like that. Uh, it was yeah. recorded in Athens. So uh, maybe we'll get him on the show and uh, find out more about I'm trying to. Yeah, I wrote to him, but there. he hasn't responded yet. We'll have to see. Uh, uh, that's cool if he doesn't want to do it. But it'll be good press. I mean, you know, come on. Yeah. Yakovos and your yeah. whole trio. Bring them all. Yeah, bring them all. And actually, yeah. I think we're going to do another organ episode coming up soon because I have a, it's like exploding with hammond kind of uh, recordings recently. So uh, huh. I don't want to. Let them get too far out of date. Yeah, organ's a big classical uh, instrument too. That those church organs, but I don't really have any of those uh, recordings at the moment. They're right. not com- not coming out too much. I've got a lot of chamber and orchestral coming up, so right. we'll see. And especially next week, we're finally mm-hmm. going to talk about I think the uh, Makela um, Sibelius symphonies set on Decca mm-hmm. because we've been preparing we've been preparing for this for over a month because yeah. <laughs> it's four CDs and I just find it hard to listen to like seven symphonies back to back it's kind of yeah. I feel like I have to pace myself for those but I think I'm finally ready for it we'll see well you're listening to Adult Music the podcast with music for the mature mind and this is episode 66 and speaking of organs uh, we're going to be uh, looking at a different kind of uh, not organ but keyboard uh, tonight we're going to be focusing on the piano uh, in a, lots of different styles and different ensembles. We're going to hear different ways of tickling the ivories. That's right. 
<laughs> I'm laughing already. Uh, before we yeah. get into the oh. uh, the program, though, <laughs> I want to remind uh, our listeners uh, that in the episode description, you're going to find links to Spotify and Apple Music uh, with all the music that we'll discuss for each recording. Uh, also, at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist, all the recordings in one place on Deezer. Uh, where you can also follow the podcast. Uh, just look us up to find either one. Uh, Adult Music Podcast is our username. And now, if you don't see the full description uh, or list of recordings on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, come over and check us out on our host site, uh, Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N, podbean.com. Uh, you can find us there. All the links are easy to find uh, for the music recordings. Now, if you do enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you listen to us on. Take a moment, uh, give us a ranking or write a review. That helps us get listed in the browsing category recommendations, and that helps us grow our audience, and it makes us happy. I'd like to say we did have our best month yet for the month of May, uh, well over a 1,000 downloads, uh, which is good for us as we uh, build up and grow our audience. So we hope that things keep expanding from here. Uh, you can also check us out on Facebook. We've got a page there. Uh, you can leave a message or comment and we do post some humorous things or uh, videos related to the upcoming episode uh, there. If you want to get a little bit of uh, extra content, you can check us out there. Or if you'd like to contact us directly with any comments or questions, uh, send us an email. Our address, adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. We'd be happy to hear from you. Yeah. Um, so I guess we'll just, uh, go right into it here, huh? Are you ready? I guess so. Uncover the uh, keyboard, take that uh, yeah, little cloth off from it. Yeah, dust cover up. And, uh, where are we going to start? <laughs> uh, what era tonight? Okay, well, we're starting in the classical era with Mozart. Now, um, Mozart, one of my favorite composers, um... And uh, we don't do a lot of him, but lately we did one last week. Last week, and yeah. we're doing one that we've actually done quite a few this year. We did uh, the clarinet concerto too, but that was part of a, a set with um, another um, more modern work. That was the the uh, yoga one, <laughs> the oh, clarinet concerto with the, that was an odd the yoga pairing, work yeah. on it. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be another odd pairing coming up. There's another Mozart clarinet concerto with another contemporary work on it that I want to look at in the future but we'll mm. we'll talk about that soon anyway this week we have um uh mozart momentum 1786 pianist leaf of ansness uh Mahler chamber orchestra and this is on the sony label now last year we talked about mozart momentum 1785 and i found the the playing really great but i found the uh conducting of the the piano and or the uh, concerti to be a little, uh, oh, let's see, marking time a little bit too much. I wasn't mm. so happy with that recording, so I wanted to give this another chance. This is the second and final um, edition in this um, set, so I wanted to hear these two. And I do like the um, the theme a lot, the whole idea of uh, these are works that Mozart wrote in this year, so you get more of a sense of what he was up to mm. you know, in a certain year. Kind of like you know the, you know the pop music of 1969 or whatever, you know, Mozart right. 1786. That right. kind of thing. I well, I'm happy to report that uh, this one, though it has one or two things that kind of I didn't that kind of gave me pause. This one's actually a lot better than the previous one. I thought I rather liked this one. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we start with uh, Piano Concerto Number Twenty Three in A Major, Kirschel Four Eighty Eight, um, 
And we just heard this one last week on the Bavuze uh, recording, so it's kind of an interesting uh, opportunity to um, uh, compare the two. Yes. All right. All right. So this one starts out allegro, um, and it's got a slow tempo. Um, again, at the beginning of this, I was like, oh, no, here we go. This is just like last year's recording because there's not much elasticity in the melodic lines when Anz Ness, who's playing the piano, he's also conducting. And he's a kind of a rigid conductor, I think. He kind of beats time rather than kind of, um, you know, lets lets the orchestra uh-huh. gets the uh, line to breathe or things like that. A great conductor will really make the orchestra converse. Let's say he'll uh, th- th- there'll there'll be a sort of flexibility to the rhythm that'll kind of feel more like breathing rather than a metronome mm. beating. Okay, um, so this you hear this at the beginning. It takes away a lot of the charm of the piece. I thought. But here's the thing, um, that ends when he makes his piano entry at about uh, the two minute and ten second mark. It's gentle, well taken. He's lighter than he was in last year's recording. Uh, not as light as Bavuze though, who really just has this really gossamer light tone. But Anzness has like he has these incredibly even scales. Well, so does Bavuze, but you really notice this in Anzne's playing. It's uh, pretty astonishing, his technique. That was what I noticed, you know, hearing these two versions last week and this. This recording uh, is much more sort of a measured and precise approach to uh, Mozart. Not, of course, not saying Bavuze is not precise, but as you say, that yeah. sort of swelling uh, sort of liberty and also his sort of finesse of style uh, stands out in comparison uh, to this recording, which uh, I, I don't want to say it's, you know, it's not like a, a metronome or something, but you do sense that evenness and uh, sort of exactness uh, in the meter and in the way that the performance is conducted uh, in comparison. Yeah. Um I actually like Bavuze better for his more mm. characterful playing of the work. And he's also got someone conducting for him. He just has right. to focus on the piano part. I think that helps a lot, even though orchestras pretty much know how to can play Mozart without a conductor. <laughs> you know, yeah. they're, they're just good enough to do that now. Mm. Um, but when Ansnes comes in to play the piano, um, the orchestra sounds better all of a sudden because now they're following the piano, not his hands. All right. right. So um, – there's something about that, that, and it changes. It's really kind of uh, astonishing. It's almost like we're listening to like it. It's almost like there's an edit, <laughs> but there yeah, isn't. Interesting. And the yeah. uh, orchestra just kind of sounds different all of a sudden. They sound enthusiastic at about uh, the four minute and twenty second mark when they build up tension, only to arrive at an interrupted cadence. I always love those moments in Mozart. There's an appealing stateliness to this performance in the quieter passages in the fourth and fifth minutes. Um, beautiful detail in the downward scale after the seven-minute mark as Adznes clearly distinguishes between the downward moving melodic line and the scale via two levels of volume. That's how you can tell, like a professional pianist, they get these different layers of volume when they're playing between their two hands or even sometimes in the same hand, different fingers. Um, Adznes is good at uh, building up to the interrupted cadences and then stopping the momentum, you know, when, when he 
gets to that. Uh, the cadence by Mozart starts at the 9 minute 25 second mark. So this is a familiar cadence. Most people play this one. And it's taken as a classical condenso with a few romantic uh, rubato elements thrown in by Anzenes. Mozart wouldn't have played it this way. Um, but a good solid performance. And uh, once the piano comes in, we're in really good hands, uh, both um, as far as the piano and orchestra go. It's just the intro that I felt was a bit lackluster. One thing I noticed on this recording, uh, before you go on, in the uh, pieces with the orchestra, the right. piano is noticeably uh, rather low in volume in the mix. Uh, and then in the uh, other pieces uh, in the quartet, for example, it's, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's much louder. Uh, of course, I, and I don't mean just in relation to the other instruments. Uh, it just has a rather soft uh, relative volume with the miking and whatnot uh, in comparison to the orchestra. Uh, it's not, right. it's not a fault. It's just something that stuck out to me, uh, listening to it. I wonder if Anznes was the, I wonder if he was the engineer too. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it could be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure he wasn't the engineer. Let's just say that. Anyway, second movement Adagio, lovely, full, but soft tone by Anznes on the solo opening of this movement. Uh, he's very careful and deliberate with tempo, having the musical line more in mind than the emotion. Uh, he's he's Norwegian. They're not really very emotive people, I think. <laughs> All right. The slow, measured tempo of the orchestra works here to give a haunting effect at one minute and after that at one minute. The gentler orchestration at two minutes and 35 seconds or so comes across as too measured for me, but it's still nice. Um, Anzenes' is playing is beautiful throughout. Not terribly moving, though. Um, that's okay. I mean... That's his approach. Um, I prefer, I much preferred Bavuze in this in this particular movement. There's a nicely taken false cadence at four minutes and twenty two seconds executed, so that it sounds like the surprise it should be. Very nice. And the Allegro assai, um, the Rondo theme taken at full speed with great clarity. That's pretty amazing. You're hearing like a mm. really great pianist here. I should mention that the recording is uh, spotlessly clean and clear, with all instruments coming across with a burnished glow. Levels are precise, both in the playing and the recording. Uh, beautifully realized. Uh, the bassoon line at 22 seconds is impressively taken and caught on the recording. Mm. And we hear in movements like this the greatness of Anzanes' playing. He's got clear, smooth scales at high speed, excellent articulation and virtuosity. Uh, the piano theme at the ending of the first departure theme from the Rondo section at 2 minutes and 38 seconds always reminds me of uh, the song Dixie. Dun, 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 but it goes up from there. But I always get to hear Dixie when I hear that. <laughs> that was true in Bavuze last week, too. I think I might have mentioned it there, too. I think you did, yeah. We generally don't think of orchestration when we think of Mozart, but recordings like this make me marvel at the wind harmonies at a 3 minutes and 30 seconds. Check it out, the third movement. The next departure from the Rondo is virtuosically exciting as well. And the orchestra in the returning rondo theme has good forward momentum and ends on the final cadence with a full sense of arrival. You can hear the brass on the final notes through the texture. Nice recording. Overall, good performance. But um, I'd like it to be a little bit more sensitive in the slow movement, mm. let's say. Okay, next. We get uh, something rather unusual, a recitative and aria. This is not from an. This is Chio mi scordi di te, non temer amato bene. These two songs. Well, Chio mi scordi di te is the uh, recitative, and the aria is uh, non temer 
Amato bene. Don't be afraid, my love. <laughs> Not from an opera, but it's a concert aria made to be uh, sung in concert. And the soprano on this is uh, Christiane Karg, who I actually rather like. So I was kind of happy to see her on this recording. Um, no text in the booklet, by the way. I had to go to Wikipedia. Easy enough to find uh, the, the lyrics <laughs> and an English translation are on Wikipedia. Just type in Kiyomi Scordi di te and it'll come up. Hey, come on, um, Sony. <laughs> yeah, Sony. They do this. They've done this before. I shouldn't complain. It is on streaming now, finally. <laughs> you know, Sony, you didn't find anything on streaming for, for, for a few years. but all those See, that's why the minor labels, they're... Uh, yeah, they're the better ones, I think. You don't need Wikipedia. <laughs> I don't need Wikipedia for uh, yeah, Hyperion releases may not be on uh, streaming, but they give you all the material that you need, mm. which is nice. Okay. Anyway, aside from that, uh, Anzanas conducts with fire in the first section. Um, in this case, he sounds okay. He's not preoccupied with the piano. And so he focuses and perhaps Karg's singing inspires him. She's very expressive with a nice tone, and the orchestra responds well to her. In the non temer part, that's the aria, Ansnes accompanies on the piano as well. Okay, this is part of the reason why this is on this album. Uh, this section has a calm rondo theme with more tempestuous outbursts in the departures from the theme, always returning to calm when the rondo returns. Ansnes gets a really upbeat sound out of the piano. To be honest, uh, Karg's voice is partly obscured by the piano part. This is Partly what you were talking about, the piano is way forward. And whenever you have a, a soprano or a, a singer, a vocalist, they need to be in the spotlight because yeah. they're singing the words. They're carrying the meaning of the piece. Hmm. And they have the most appealing material usually, almost always. Uh, she's always audible, though. See, she's not being obscured by the – she's not being covered by the piano part, but she is kind of being sort of – interfered with a bit, I think. Mm. Uh, no problem hearing her on the Forte Duol Funesto. When you hear that, those words, those come ringing out. Most of the expression comes from the piano and orchestra. To be honest, though, Karg does her part well. Uh, the piano really emphasizes the Forte on the words uh, Stelle Barbare, Barbare, the uh, barbarous stars. And so does Karg, but more subtly. I really think the piano is spotlighted too much compared to the soprano uh, on this um, particular recording. She sometimes gets obscured. There are gorgeous passages, like at the uh, 7 minutes 11 seconds, when the rondo theme material is taken with great feeling and warmth. A good full-body performance, and I think the soprano is too far back. That's all I really have to say about that. Did I mention that the soprano is too far back? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> okay. Okay, next we get uh, a quartet, number two, piano quartet number two. Um, this features uh, Matthew Truscott on violin, Joel Hunter on viola, and Frank Michael Guthman on the cello, and of course, Leif Ove Ansnes on the piano. This is a pretty long piece. Like the Allegro uh, has good detail in the recording, noticeable right away. All the voices are very clear. And Anzanez really shines on this. His scales are incredibly even. His tone maintains its volume level through all runs. The piece breathes well. And I also like the violin's phrasing. He kind of stood out, too. That's Matthew Truscott. Um, as with last year's recording, Anzanez is at his best when he's not conducting. I notice in the opening and repeat that Anzanez plays the 1-5. It's like a dominant tonic bass line. Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Without pedaling. 
so that both notes register as staccato, but the bass note, the lower note, is slightly longer than the the upper note. It's a nice uh, texture that he creates from that. Um, the rest of his playing is lyrical, and the violin's line is well-shaped with a suitably sweet tone. Uh, the development section has a clearly delineated start at 5 minutes 34 seconds and explores some minor, darker-sounding key areas. Uh, the section after 6 minutes 30 seconds draws attention with its sudden quieting and interesting trade-off of lines between the vi- violin sorry, and cello. And the recapitulation comes back at the 7-minute, 8-second mark with the strings playing their solo parts softly this time. As in the larger piano concerto, all of the lovely details of the orchestration come across clearly and straight to a final cadence here. Second movement, Larghetto. The piano plays the opening, ornamented theme. It starts a phrase that the rest of the ensemble answer. Once the cello takes over the pulsing bass line at around 1 minute 15 seconds, the piece seems to pick up in tempo. The piano matches that tempo when he gets repeating chords in his bass line. There's a full cadence just before the 2 minute mark, leading to another full stop at 2 minutes and 16 seconds. And then we get a repeat of the opening. Uh, accompaniment at 4 minutes to 6 seconds is surprisingly taken with a vibratoless thread of sound. He catches the ear. I like these little subtle changes that the... Uh, musicians will make to really just kind of grab your ear. Uh, The cadence we heard in the first part is repeated, and this time we get a sudden new key at uh, 4 minutes and 44 seconds to launch us into the development. The recap starts at about uh, 5 minutes and 55 seconds. There's a nice false cadence, love those in Mozart, at 7 minutes and 50 seconds, leading to the cadence at 8 minutes, so he kind of takes it away only to give it to us again. There's a one-minute coda after this leading to the final cadence. Anz Ness's piano gets a rich, full, deep bass sound as he goes down for the last gentle note. We arrive at the Allegretto movement, the last movement of this quartet. A cheerful theme played with high precision more than with a sense of fun. We do get a sense of the stylishness of the material from this approach, though. Um, This movement is a rondo, so we'll hear this theme several times. It returns after some virtuosic material in the second minute. After the third minute, we get a stark, deadly serious section with quick scalar runs on the piano, and this eventually lightens up as it leads us back to the rondo theme at the start of the seventh minute. There's a nice dramatic ending, taken with some excitement. Uh, I thought this movement, like I said at the beginning, could have had a bit of more sense of fun to it, but it's well played. And stylish. We go on to the next CD, or the next track, if you're just streaming this. It's a solo piece for piano, Rondo in D major, Kirschel 485. Um, Anznes takes a fleet tempo here, and he has a very light touch. The melodic line is beautifully shaped over an even bed of arpeggiated accompaniment. Um, There's a sudden change of feeling at a minute and 46 seconds as we abruptly launch into the first episode. Um, There's a nice pearly tone, meaning from the Rondo theme. There's a departing episode then we go back to the rondo Ansnes gets a nice pearly tone on this as he takes a brief uh, retard to get back to the rondo theme after 2 minutes to 30 seconds or so retardando slowing down but the music is quickly moved into another departure from the theme a quick restatement of the rondo theme and a brief coda and this piece is over quickly as though it came and went in a puff of smoke <sighs> invites re-listening okay then we get the second well depending on how you yeah, I guess the uh, soprano aria would be also a chamber work, so 
depending on how you're counting, this is the second or third uh, chamber work on this um, album. The trio number three, piano trio number three in B flat major, Kerschel 502, featuring Matthew Truscott on violin and Frank Michael Guthman on the cello. First movement allegro. Uh, this tempo seems pretty swift. Um, I rather like uh, Michael Truscott's violin playing. I mentioned that earlier. He really caught my ear on this whole mm. recording, as well as in the quartet. He shapes his phrases appealingly. And since his piano, as Russ mentioned earlier, is right up front. And he mostly maintains a discrete volume, but his presence is always felt. He's very much the star. I mean, he really made himself the star on this album. I think he might have been in the control room while the engineer was um, doing the mix. Uh, his trill at the cadence material is smooth and buttery. It drew my attention. Uh, they're not really supposed to, though. <laughs> but uh, this did. Uh, there's a repeat of the opening material registering more dramatically in the bridge to the second theme. Uh, tension is highlighted via harmony rather than themes in this uh, performance. The development starts at 4 minutes and 42 seconds. It's clearly delineated by a pause. The opening development material is an endearing melody taken by the violin, then by the other two instruments. A proper fragmented development starts after this. It's really moving, although at the rather fast tempo, uh, keeps the excitement up and feeling... I feel like we're th being rushed through an art exhibit did you ever see, <laughs> yeah. see um, Jean-Luc Godard's movie um, Band Apart, the uh, band of outsiders? Don't think I have. No. There's a scene in it where they try to set the uh, world record for going through the Louvre, and they just kind of there's a scene of uh, the characters sprinting through the Louvre Museum <laughs> in Paris. This this passage here kind of reminded oh, okay. me of that. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, it kind of felt like okay. Here's, here's this theme. Okay, the next theme. Okay, the next theme. It just went so, a, so fast. I have a similar musical museum story like that, actually. Oh, you have to tell if, it. You want to tell it now? Okay. If you want. So there used yeah, to, go. I believe it's closed now, but there was a John Lennon Museum oh. in Japan. And oh. um, it was out in, uh, I think it was in Tokyo. And I had a friend of mine, uh, used to be one of my professors, who's a guitar guitarist and uh you know there had been buzz in the u.s about um this museum and the guitars that were in it and there was some question as to whether they were actually the authentic guitars you know that they claimed to be and john lennon had used on different albums so um <laughs> my friend was going to go and investigate <laughs> Uh, if they were actually, <laughs> you know, the guitars by looking at certain, you know, things on them. So he had brought magnifying glass and flashlights like that. So when we got in the museum uh, in, you know, kind of Japanese style, you were only allowed a certain right. amount of time in each room. And then right. we were rushed yeah. into the next room. And so whenever yeah. he would get his flashlight or, you know, camera out to take a picture, he was escorted more quickly <laughs> along <laughs> that he was getting really frustrated. I don't know. I remember there have been, say, exhibits here from the Louvre or some, you know, European right. museums. Like, you know, mm -hmm. they love, they're crazy about the Impressionists here in Japan. Right. And, and I remember there was an Impressionist um, exhibit here at one point and I went, <laughs> which was a big mistake, really. Yeah. Because uh, the Japanese love these paintings and they, they will all go to them. And I went and there was a huge crowd of people in there. And what happens is the same kind of thing. You're kind of like, you're not being escorted, but everybody's standing in front of one painting. You can't get a good look at it. 
And then they all move on to the next one, and you're kind of in the crowd, so you kind of have to go with yeah, them. Yeah. You know, I, was, I didn't feel like I was really getting to see these paintings, you know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's going to went like that. Okay, we're looking at this painting. Okay, good. Next one. You right. know, it was, it was sort of like that. Yeah. I really did not enjoy the experience. Anyway. Yeah, I kind of I see what you mean about this piece like that. Um, Here. Sort of f- felt like you're being taken yeah. through it onto the next part. Uh, even you might want to spend a little more time. To milk yeah. it a little bit more, but yeah, that's the development section of the first movement of the uh, piano trio that I'm mm. talking about there. Um, so yeah, this way to the main theme. Hurry, okay. So it's almost like they're in the development section. It's like they're trying to run through a bunch of doors so they can get back to the main theme and I don't know, eat dinner or something. There's <laughs> a bowl of ramen waiting for them. Anyway, um, that's not to say it's too fast, though. It just goes by without me being able to get a real grip on it, is what I wanted to say. Anyway, at the 5 minute and 40 second mark, we're in the recapitulation. And all in all, the movement is lightly taken. It feels more decorative than dramatic, and that's appropriate. That's a, that's a good approach to this. You could take a dramatic approach as well. Um, second movement, Larghetto. Piano starts this alone with an elegant theme. Pensively played. Again, the violin is appealing when he plays the theme at his entry. He lightly brushes the strings as he plays it, the violin. This is a series of variations, this movement. I'm enjoying the one at 4 minutes and 43 seconds, tenderly taken as it is. Oof. It has a gentle quality and stands out in this performance among all the others, which are all fine. Ansonest has a gorgeous even tone throughout. We could just assume that, I guess. I say I'm saying it over and over again. Anyway, the third movement, Allegro. This theme has a little kick to it. It sounds pastoral and a bit dancey. The pastorality disappears as the theme gets more figure-laden. We still hear that opening theme, but it's become more academic, but in no way pedantic. There's a bit of fire in this movement, as a lot of the rushing passages are played with some volume. This sounds like it's structured somewhat like a sonata, and the theme being developed a bit uh, arrives at its original guise in the third minute. Uh, impressive fingerwork by Ansnes in this movement, heard up close. I've heard this piece more charmingly played, but I've no quibbles about it here. It comes across more technically fine than charming. So think about it. this mm-hmm. is technically fine playing on this record. So if that's your approach to Mozart, this is the record for you. Okay, let me just put it that way. Anyway, the um, the uh. We, we now get to the closing hunk of bread <laughs> on this double album, which is another concerto. These are the big, the two big works bookend, all the, the quieter chamber works in the middle. Kind of an interesting approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is uh, concerto number 24, as you might have guessed, because it's the same. We we're all talking about the same year, so of course we would do the next piano concerto next. Um, the cadenza here is by that amazing uh, composer, Anonymous. Oh, yeah. <laughs> who's, One of my who's just brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> it, we don't know who wrote the cadenza, in other words, is what I'm saying. It's a joke. This is, this is sort of a thing. They say composed by – a lot of times they'll write composed by Anonymous. So, like it's his name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, some guy's name. Anyway, they, they're just saying that the cadenza is by someone anonymous here. Okay, first movement, Allegro, starts out well. I'm always – see, now he's got me on edge because, like, it's going to start out with the orchestra. And I know 
that he's going to be that Anzanes is going to be beating time by now. But this one starts out well. It's got a tentative uh, creeping menace to it, which is well realized by Anzanes on the baton. So this one starts well. He teases out a lot of nice wind detail just before the first minute and lets the lines flow just after the first minute mark. Um, he's not as flexible in the rhythm here as I'd like, but his style here can be heard as an interpretative choice. It doesn't sound like he's just beating time as it did at the, in the concerto previous to this one that started the album. The orchestra really registers in the fortes and sound prope- is propelled forward by the timpani. They sound great, especially if you have a subwoofer. The piano comes in quietly at around 2 minutes and 20 seconds as if cowed by what's just been heard. Uh, The quick pulling back on the orchestral sound at 3 minutes and 30 seconds and after is unique to my ear. Clearly defined. A nice detail. More felicitous detail between 4 minutes and 30 seconds and 5 minutes as the orchestra pulls back after each brief phrase with the piano. This continues throughout the movement. Whenever there's a chance, the winds get an interesting quality in the sound. Listen for the oboes after the 7th minute, for example. The piano even gets an aggressive... uh, growl in the bass at around uh, 7 minutes and 30 seconds, despite all the wonderful pearly scales. In the ninth minute, Anznes plays with the pulling back of orchestral sound after every third beat of the waltzing theme. Uh, it's a nice effect. The cadenza comes in in the 11th minute, and it's pretty dramatic. Well taken by Anznes, who plays it for all its darkness of harmony. And there's an unexpectedly quiet ending. We get to the second movement, which um, doesn't have a tempo marking. It's bracketed as larghetto. This comes across as pretty light and pleasant after the darkness of the first movement. Ansnes is conducting well on this piece. A solid tempo is taken, and the string accompaniment for the piano's exposed line is sensitive, if a little square. Again, it's wanting in flexibility and breathing quality. Um, but Ansnes has this in his piano playing. His, his uh, lines breathe very well when he's playing. The details in the winds are a minute and 30 seconds. They're nicely realized and captured by the recording. Um, This movement is sensitively played and conducted with just uh, the last bit of sensitivity missing in the actual phrasing of the orchestra. Anznes' playing on this, on the piano, is excellent. The third movement and final movement, Allegretto, um, made me think... It just occurred to me at this point, right before the end of the album, that we're hearing a pretty big-boned orchestra. I think this might be a bigger orchestra than we heard than we heard last week when we heard the Bavuze mm-hmm. recording. Um, it's not like the gigantic orchestras of the past, like when we were uh, kids and you had the the entire New York Philharmonic accompanying you know, <laughs> in a Mozart piece with the um, with the uh, what do you call it, the period instruments um, research. Um, Mm. orchestras were pared back for a lot of these earlier recordings Uh, we often get a leaner sound with fewer musicians as in last week's uh, Bavuze recording as I mentioned Um, although this piece wasn't featured on it Anzanes' playing in this movement is very deliberate and heavily articulated which fits well with the thematic material it's an interesting choice but pretty heavy and I'd say I prefer this lighter I can't complain though the whole thing comes across well even the bassoon, after a minute and 30 seconds, and again, starting at 2 minutes and 4 seconds, is forcefully put across. Melodic phrases are deliberately square in this performance. I like Anznes' triumphant ending of the phrase at 3 minutes and 8 seconds in this bombastic variation. I should mention this is a variation movement. 
Um, the next variation contrasts with its softer contours. Then we get a marching variation. And as expected, when the pianistic detail becomes complex, Anzanes sorts out all the varying voices so that they're easy to follow and a pleasure to hear. So all in all, summary, a better release for, for me than last year's 1785 Mozart Momentum, which was also good, but I found lacking in a lot of areas. The pian well, not in Anzanes' playing, though. He's always good when he's playing. The Piano Concerto 24 in C minor comes off particularly well on this sum recording if it's rather bold interpretation for today. Anyway, all of the chamber music comes across well with Anznez always the most audible. He's got a big sound and presence, but he's light on the sound and still heavy on presence on this recording. I'm happy to say I rather like this one. I'll listen to it again. Maybe I'll even go back to last year's 1785 Mozart Momentum and give it another chance. I like the programming concept on this album and the previous one a lot. Yeah, I enjoyed this. It's a very different Mozart than the Bavose uh, experience we had last week, um, which he yes. just can't help mm. but paint his, you know, sort of flowing charm style uh, on anything that he does. Yeah. Uh, not too much, but just that little flair. Uh, so this is much more uh, kind of measured, but not unexpressive Mozart performance. I love the sound of the orchestra. It sounds thick and clear. Uh, yeah, all the instruments. It's a great recording. Uh, as I mentioned, I, I noticed a difference in the piano level in the chamber works with the orchestra, but you can always hear it very clearly, uh, both to the recording and his very precise and clear articulation. I enjoyed it. It's brilliantly, uh, brilliantly played. Uh, and like I say, the programming is unique. Uh, I haven't heard Mozart piano pieces in this kind of order before. And, you know, one year's works it gives you kind of a insight into what he was working on at at one particular moment uh normally you know you have these composition numbers and then you know you look at the year as an afterthought and here's kind of like a snapshot with a variety of uh works both chamber and then with orchestra uh, so a very nice sounding release it's always precise uh, excellent playing yeah if you're in a Mozart mood, I think you'll be pleased to listen to this. Maybe I preferred last week's recording a little bit. I did too. Yeah, this album is a lot like, it kind of reminds me of those Christmas cards you get from your family members at the end of the year when they tell you what their kids have been up to all year. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's sort of like that. This is what Mozart was up to in this year. You know, you kind of yeah, it's, it's get a little snapshot of that. And this is just the piano yeah. stuff too. I and mean, who knows? Was yeah, there's was probably more. On, yeah. yeah. Oh, there were operas. Oh, oh sure. Yeah. It's really crazy. Unbelievable. Yeah, you can imagine. There's a lot of stuff. Oh, boy. Anyway, so onwards. Next, we have a solo piano release of uh, Rachmaninoff's piano music, Piano Sonata Number no. 1, and his Moments Musico, played by Stephen Osborne, one of my favorite pianists. Actually, he and Stephen Huff, I keep going back and forth. I can't really decide which of them is my favorite pianist. They're both my favorite pianists, let's just say that, mm. for different reasons, really. And this is on the Hyperion label. So no streaming, and, folks. Sorry about that. Yeah, no streaming. <laughs> and that's a real shame because this is a CD or an album of spectacular piano playing. It's really amazing. I'm glad these are <laughs> solo works because there's no room for anyone else on here there's so much yeah. going on yeah yeah you might want to i don't know tape your 
mouth shut or something while you're listening to this because your jaw will just drop to your chest as you hear this the the amazing playing on this record. Osborne is a really is a really great player, and he's he's especially good in Russian music. I've noticed. Yeah. Um. He he's Scottish, mm-hmm. and he gets like a a good Russian sound. Though as I mentioned, not as Russian as Russian pianists get. They they're a lot well, more big bones than he is. What's interesting to me with that idea is you know Rachmaninoff in the wrong hands can be kind of what's our word we used before schmaltzy right and um, also noty it can noty. be noty but yeah. we've heard uh, Trifonov's Rachmaninoff which is uh, yeah. very interestingly measured and not overdone yeah. uh, in a yeah. sentimental way but I found this recording Osborne really mined the feverish kind of histrionic Right, kind of uh, feelings inside Rachmaninoff, in contrast, you know, to you know these sort of uh, syrupy kind of things that can be in the wrong hands. So I was really intrigued with the sort of intensity he found uh, in these works here. Yeah, and not only that is intensity, but as with Ansnes and Mozart, though this is like another level of um, uh, music here, um, as far as far as like. You know, because this is after the Romantic era where we're getting louder and things like that. Um, He manages to keep all these voices, these uh, opposing lines clear, even at these loud volumes and things like that. Everything just flows so beautifully. Yeah. Anyway, let's just talk about this. See if I can um, give you some things to listen for to make it a little more enjoyable. You're going to have to buy this one, folks, though. Yeah. You can you can get it at the Hyperion site. They they you can get an MP3 from them, but you have to buy it. But if you're a piano fan, you'll want to have this. Anyway, let's listen. The first one, the first piece we have is Piano Sonata Number One in D Minor, Opus Twenty Eight. Not a famous work, by the way. Um, it's very complex. Um, it sounds really really hard to play, as do most Russian <laughs> early twentieth century solo piano works. Another composer um, that Rachmaninoff was friends with was uh, Nikolai Medtner, and his yeah. works sound really difficult to play too. Um, incidentally, there's a great Osborne, Stephen Osborne, uh, recording of Medtner's. Oh, that's one a great one. Yeah. Too. That, too. that was a great yeah, one nice. too. It also has Rachmaninoff on it, the second piano sonata, I believe. Anyway, this this sonata, sonata number one in D minor, Opus 28, um, we found out later, I guess, from uh, one of Rachmaninoff's friends, is modeled after Goethe's Faust. Hmm. So, in its ambition, it can be said to be inspired by Liszt's piano sonata in B minor for its size and length, and uh, the, his Liszt's Faust symphony, which was an orchestral work. Um, the Romantic uh, era composers and really artists in general were uh, just nuts about Goethe in general and uh, his Faust in particular just as they were nuts about Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. These things inspired everything. One of the things I love about these uh, composers from that era and Rachmaninoff, he was later but he'd still probably be in this um, mindset. They just knew all the big literature and music that came out that was uh, talked about in that era. And they, they were just so literate. And I really sort of envy them that because we're not very literate these days. And oddly enough, I think the internet has uh, played a big part in that because there's just so much mm-hmm. available to us on the internet that we can't possibly all you know, <laughs> follow everything. So we just go off into our own little holes and 
you know, mm. wormholes and follow um, the things we like. You know, so we don't really have a shared culture anymore like these people did. Um, the three movements um, in this um, sonata are portraits of the characters. The first is uh, Faust himself. The second is uh, Gretchen. And the third is Mephistopheles, the uh, the uh, devil character. Um, Rachmaninoff unified the sonata by binding it with a small number of recurring and mutating motifs. So again, Franz Liszt in his piano sonata, uh, the Listian ambition is present there too. Also, virtuosity. Liszt was the great virtuoso of his era, and this work requires great virtuosity. Um, not for the uh, pianist at home to read through. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this starts Allegro Moderato, and this is Faust, okay? Uh, it's full of anguish, and in the booklet says, cursed questions. Um, there's a chant-like theme that prevails over the agitation that gives intimations of faith and hope. It starts very quietly, and we hear the fifths that will unify the material in the harmony. The chant theme is heard almost right away around the 42nd mark, and it keeps kind of appearing and disappearing throughout the uh, the fairly long movement, actually. Then you get into this rapid Rachmaninoff figuration. Think the think about after the uh, folky theme of the third piano concerto, how the piano just takes off. That sort of happens here too, and the agitated opening material begins. And Osborne is remarkable here. He gets a heavy character that goes beautifully with writing of this kind. Um, I remember him from previous recordings from Rachmaninoff and other Russian piano music. Um, Rachmaninoff's complex layering of lines and melodies are expertly sorted out in his carefully weighted but nevertheless passionate playing. The performance, I would say, airs on the side of clarity, uh, if that can be said to be airing, you know, but... Um, Sometimes you have to make choices, and I think here he chose he chose clarity over um, over passion. What I'm saying is, there's passion in this. It's not like there's no passion. It's just that when a choice between clarity and passion has to be made, he'll choose clarity. Um, and I like that. I appreciate that because um, I like hearing the lines and the details in a piece of music. So this is why I like Osborne's playing so much. The recording, as is often the case with Osborne's recordings, is quiet. You'll have to boost the volume. Um, I love the way he melts from section to section, disguising any joins with his sense of continuous line. Um, Everything is discernible. The music gets very agitated by the seventh minute mark, and it's miraculous that the entire texture is clearly audible and musical. Um, Osborne is a great pianist, one of my favorites. This is why. He gets a big, bold sound at eight minutes when he returns to more stable material. Uh, not quite as huge as some of the great Russian pianists, but no worries. The emotion comes across, and the Russianness comes across in this piece, too, when it needs to. Um, this is what I mean by airing on the side of clarity, by the way. The uh, gentler chant material is heard in the ninth and tenth minute, but morphs into agitation, and some pretty breathtaking playing from Osborne here. We end with quiet, calmish music, but not peace this uh, movement is unresolved as Faust's whole <laughs> situation is. The second movement represents Gretchen uh, from Faust, and uh, it's got a beautiful interweaving of melodies uh, that characterize the movement. So that would be Faust and Gretchen, I think, together. Um, there's a pastoral mood that gives way to a sense of yearning and striving that rises to great intensity. This is the booklet notes, by the way, I'm looking at now. 
then dissolves into a cadenza that leads to a surprise, a reprise of the opening material. Um, the texture is complicated by trills, which lend the music a new ecstatic character. And in the coda, the two voices singing in duet reveal that the movement was a love scene. We really figure that out only at the end. Osborne here manages an almost impossibly quiet opening to this movement, uh, which acts as accompaniment to the slightly less quiet thematic melody. There are some really gorgeous key changes in chords in this movement, where into the yearning in the third minute, you might notice it gets to a roiling level. Then at 5 minutes and 30 seconds, we're in a quiet, gorgeous melody again. It's the opening material, but sounds even warmer after what we've just heard. The coda is at around 7 minutes and 45 seconds with the duet. Okay, the third movement, this is Mephistopheles. Um, this begins tempestuously and leads to a sinister march. And the melodic contours in this are reminiscent of the Dies Irae chant, which, whenever, which we play whenever we have our uh, musical necrology segment on this podcast. There were no musical deaths of note this week, so we didn't play it. Um, notice that. Dun, 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 dun. You can hear the dun, 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 the first part in the uh, melodic profile. It's not a direct quote, but the, the death theme is there. Um, the DSA was the preeminent symbol of death in the music of the Romantics. They really adopted it for that reason. Um, there's more storminess here after the calm second movement. Um, Mephistopheles and the devil in general is often characterized by rhythmically active music. Um, and that's the case here. The opening is pretty complex. Um, accompanying figuration supports a theme made up of chords. And the dotted rhythm march comes at about a minute and 30 seconds. The transition to the quicker dotted rhythm at 2 minutes and 30 seconds is seamless and remarkable, as is the execution of the material itself. A quiet theme is given way to at around 4 minutes and 30 seconds. Beautiful layering of uh, accompaniment and quiet melody at around 6 minutes and 30 seconds. Um, that's, that's the sort of playing that separates professionals from amateurs, by the way, when you can hear the... Uh, the accompaniment clearly, and yet it's you're very aware it's the accompaniment because it's so much lower than the melodic line. In the dotted rhythmic rhythm material that follows, the Dies Irae material is hard to pull out because it's dancing along with the rhythm, and it doesn't have the solemn quality we associate with the chant. But it's in there, in the melodic contour, as I said. There's a big, bold ending to this highly difficult and complex work. Um, the big, bold ending, by the way, is a flight to the witch's Sabbath. <laughs> okay. Oh, good Halloween stuff here. And a miraculous performance by Osborne in this work. I was pretty exhausted after hearing this. All right. We next get four very brief works that uh, are posthumous. posthumous. Um, the first is a prelude in D minor, written in 1917. And uh, think about Russia, 1917. That's an important year. That's the year of the Bolshevik Revolution. Now, Rachmaninoff was a, he's from a landowning family, so they would have had servants in the house. And uh, things were getting a little uncomfortable for him. Mm -hmm. He eventually immigrated to America and uh, spent the rest of his life here. Not well. Here we're in Japan, but in America, let's <laughs> say we have a lot of listeners in America. So I sort yeah. of think of myself sometimes as being there. Um, 
Rachmaninoff is probably alluding to the uh, grinding dissonances of Chopin's A minor prelude in this piece. And uh, at around the time this was written, the, the Tsar abdicated uh, due to the rise of the Bolsheviks. And um, so there are bleak ruminations and uh, become, they become a sinister dance. And he, Rachmaninoff may have had all of that, those events in mind when he wrote this. It's pretty bleak sounding, sounds stormy and gray. And the middle part, as we said, has a sinister dance quality. Fifth track is Oskolki Fragments. It's not fragmentary in form, but nostalgic in character. There's something tentative about the opening material, each little phrase settling on a chord. The middle section whirls a bit like a dance. It's rather touching. Okay, a little uh, nostalgic. The sixth... Um, track is called Oriental Sketch. It's vigorous, good-humored, like a Takata. And the title, Oriental Sketch, comes from the publisher, not from Rachmaninoff himself. Um, though there's not much Oriental about it. Um, <laughs> it's more no. like a, like a, what do you call it, a perpetual, perpetual mobile, a perpetual motion sort of thing. It's like an engine that turns over and starts running. Yeah, it has these kind of rolling waves of sound that get a rhythmic thing going in it, yeah. Yeah, it has a train engine type of uh, momentum to it. it. To me, it's very machine-like um, after the first minute. And the violinist, uh, Fritz Chrysler, joked that instead of Oriental Sketch, he should have called it the Orient Express. Express. <laughs> <laughs> that was the name of a train. And it does sound more like that. Anyway, the seventh uh, track is kind of an interesting choice. Uh, Nunc Dimittis from um, Rachmaninoff's um, choral work, uh, Vespers, the all-night vigil. Um, he did a solo piano version of this beautiful melody. He doesn't do anything to dress it up. It's very spare. Um, Nuke Dimittis, of course, is from uh, the, the word Simeon says when he sees the baby Jesus. He's an old priest. It's the Gospel of Luke, right? It's in Luke, yes. Gospel of Luke. Uh, let thy servants depart in peace now that I've seen the Lord. Okay. Um, it's, be it's a beautiful uh, lyric. And even it's a beautiful passage in Luke as well, if you look it up. Uh, this is a modest but subtle transcription of the choral work. Um, it's very simple and quiet. Osborne gets almost impossibly quiet, accompanying chords ticking in the background in support of the touching melody. Really beautiful. It made me want to go hear the uh, choral version. With the words in Russian. Mm. All right, tracks eight through thirteen are "Moment Musico," Opus sixteen. Um, these are shorter pieces, and their genesis is pretty interesting. They they came into being because twenty three year old Rachmaninoff had a substantial amount of money stolen from him on a train journey, and he <laughs> needed to restore his finances. So he started writing songs and short piano pieces like these that would be marketable. Uh, that's what we're trying to do with this podcast, by the way. But so far, two years in, we're not making anything. <laughs> we haven't been able to keep them short either. <laughs> <laughs> and they're not short either. That's right. Oh, man. Uh, the influence is Chopin, but Ramanov's pieces feel broader and more monumental. In the first four pieces, the mood is unremittingly dark. All right. The first of these is uh, B-flat minor, reminiscent of a Chopin nocturne. So it's a little gentle. It sounds more watery to me, though, like a barcarole, I guess. Though it does have a kind of nighttime quality to it. So maybe a nighttime gondola ride, let's say. 
In the middle section, there's a dotted rhythm that gives the music a lighter skipping quality. And the Gossamer light scales at 3 minutes and 20 seconds are incredible. Do you know what Gossamer is, by the way? It's like the lightness. It's like a spider web. Thin, thin, yeah. like spider's web type yeah. uh, uh, lightness. Mm. I like that word for, for these really light sounding scales. Gossamer light scales at 3 minutes and 20 seconds. Just the uh, sounds Osborne conjures from the piano are amazing. I like all the filigree work happening inside the beats at 4 minutes and 30 seconds or so. And there's a quiet ending. The second in E-flat minor, Allegretto, is reminiscent of a Chopin etude. Um, and it has this surging spirit that reminds us of Schumann, according to the notes. There's some impressive filigree work at, the, at a very quiet volume at the beginning of this. Osborne makes the line ebb and flow like breathing, kind of what I wanted to hear in the mm-hmm. beginning of the Mozart by um, <laughs> the Mozart piano concertos, you know, at the... Uh, the conducted part. There's a hint of a funeral march in the middle section, and we can hear the Dies Irae in there too, if you have a good ear. Uh, it sounds kind of inquisitive in its opening phrase, which acts as the theme for the first section. Uh, the marching theme starts at 2 minutes and 34 seconds, and this is an ABA form. The fourth track, did I do that right? I think I did. Okay. No, I missed, I, I skipped something no, here. Hold you gotta on. be on three now. Yeah, I'm on three now. Okay. Um, yeah, B minor. That, this is the best known of the series, by the way. And it's also the most unusual. The melody is all parallel thirds, which is odd. This is where the DSA is heard, not in the second one. Okay. Okay. So there's a marching theme in the middle. Okay, now we go to the fourth track, E minor, presto. Reminiscent of a Chopin etude, perhaps the revolutionary etude. That's uh, opus um, 10, number 12, the last one which is, you know, the really powerful one with a roiling bass yeah. line. Everybody's heard it. Okay. This is like a shipwreck or a train collision in this one. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a tempest, really. Mm. There's a very singable melody above all the explosive rushing scales in the accompaniment. Again, in about one minute, Osborne manages a remarkable drop in volume despite the rushing material he's playing. The evenness of it all is incredible. It's quite a display of virtuosity. And it sounds much harder than Chopin's revolutionary etude, which your highly talented kids play, probably. I've heard kids play that. Never heard kids play this, though. Anyway. <laughs> Next, D-flat major. Uh, again, this is like a Chopin nocturne or a barcarolle again. Slow. It's got a wave lapping against the dock quality to it. Arpeggios in the bass. And the upper melody moves like a tranquil song. There's some lovely echoes in the upper voice in the two minute and 30 second minute or so. And the sound is muted and beautiful here. And the last one, C major, uh, Maestozal. This is number six. Reminiscent of a Chopin etude, it's majestic and heroic. We get a booming bass note launching the music into frenzied scale figures in the lower end of the piano. As the theme consists mostly of chords. This quietens a bit in the first minute. Then there's a gradual crescendo as the music picks up momentum in the second minute. And by the third minute, we're back to full volume. Oddly, all this comes across as reassuring. Uh, another drop to a softer volume after 3 minutes and 30 seconds. Then the music builds up to the final climax. I really don't see how Rachmaninoff managed to sell these pieces. They sound really hard <laughs> to play. Um, yeah. But uh, I don't know. We, we do hear them today, so... Because again, there was a there was a an amateur pianist market then that would buy 
sheet music. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Right. It sounded really rough, like rough going. Anyway, that's the end of this album. Astonishing playing from Osborne all throughout. His virtuosity is everywhere, but he always serves the music. And as I said, he errs on the side of clarity, and that's something I prefer myself. So I really, that's what makes him one of my favorite pianists. Um, if that can be said to be erring, I don't think it is. The Russian character of these works registers well, though in Russian's hands it would probably register more, obviously. I don't know. He's got a good feel for Russian music, though. This is a fantastic release, and uh, if you're looking to pocket with some part with some cash, um, this would be one to pick up if you like great piano playing. It's really fantastic. Yeah, this just adds to you know his great catalog of recordings uh, every time i hear one of his albums i'm completely impressed with the playing on it uh and the programming and this is uh, yeah another great one uh as i said it it draws out sort of a frenzied quality of rachmaninoff rather than emotional sort of syrupy side that can come out. I don't I don't really see his music that way, but in the wrong hands. I think this music could have come across as syrupy in certain hands. Not probably yeah. not the first piano sonata, but some of the other no. works. But here, like, you know, especially this last piece, uh uh it's very forceful, bringing out intense, passionate emotions that aren't sentimental at all. But Osborne always makes everything clear on this recording. Uh there are great subtleties too. Uh, and I was really impressed with the sonics of it. It has a room sound that you'll notice right from the first piece. But you get the impression that you are in the room right next to the piano, like almost you're sitting right next to him, which is a great effect. It, it's a slight reverb, but very small. Yeah. But you do get that space, uh, and it creates an, a nice sort of cozy arena for you to be right there and hear everything clearly. Yeah, but great performance. I really love Rachmaninoff, but it has to be performed right. Uh, and in the yeah. past few years, there have been some really great recordings. As I mentioned, the Trifonoff ones, I've really liked uh, his approach. And this one's going to go into my collection there as well. Uh, another great yeah. Osborne release. Uh, everything he does, is it's worth uh, spending the money for here. Hyperion's got a good thing with him on their label because... Uh, it's a shame you can't hear these on streaming, but anyone who's a, a piano lover uh, who likes this music, it's, this is well worth your investment to have on your shelf. So Absolutely. As are just about every other uh, album Osborne has ever made. Yeah, <laughs> so for sure. I, I like all of them. Yeah, he's he's definitely high. He's well. He's I would call him my favorite pianist. Him and Stephen Huff. I can't really choose between the two. It depends on what they release. You know, this one was great. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Huff just released like a, a Schubert album, which is really great. And if anyone is listening, if you haven't heard it, you've got to hear the Metner too, because Metner's not well known enough. You know, and uh, everyone yeah. should hear that. That music is outstanding as well. Yeah, I need to say something about that. I hear a lot of nonsense among. Um, classical music listeners that uh metner is um not as you know he's what do they call it second rate or third rate Rachmaninoff. oh no okay no, i don't think so i don't think so the the other argument is Rachmaninoff is metner with a lot of sugar added <laughs> metner is solid and the thing is with metner you need a great pianist to put that across because there are layers that need to be kind mm. of presented to the listener and that 
um, Osborne recording of the Sonata Romantica. You can look for it, Nikolai, Nikolai Medner. And the, the main piece on it, there are two of the uh, Skazki, I think, and then there's uh, Sonata Romantica, and then there's Rachmaninoff's second piano sonata. Mm-hmm. That's a great, great album and absolutely must be heard. I love that piece. I actually bought the score for Medner Sonata Romantica and took a look at it. It's like, oh man, it's going to take a few <laughs> lifetimes. So and I don't have a piano anymore, so I don't really try to play it, which is too bad. I need to build that up from nothing. Oh, well, maybe in the next life. Next life. Anyway, I hope he does more Medner recordings, though, because that one's so good. Yeah. Um, okay, so the final uh, work in the uh, classical selections for tonight is a contemporary composer that we really like a lot uh Pederis Vasques he's a Latvian composer and these this is an album of his uh piano works um compo- con- um performed by Rainis Zadinch on the piano and this is on the Ondine label all right well we're big fans of um especially Vasques um orchestra works and his um really his concerti last year we did the oboe concerto which was very pleasant and uh pastoral um the piano works are they're they're a harder nuts to crack a little bit <laughs> anyway, a little bit this is a kind of interesting program though I it thought. is it, and a lot of this is very much a study in contrasts uh you're going to yes. be pulled in lots of contrasting opposite directions throughout uh, these pieces yeah yeah all right, so the first work on this album is called Cuckoo's Voice, Spring Elegy. It's, mm. That's the whole title. Uh, composed in 2021, so <laughs> it's about as new as you can get it. Okay, here we are. You know, but, and if you're thinking, oh, a new piano piece that I can play at my piano. No, I don't think so. <laughs> this is not easy. <laughs> it sounds really – unless you happen to be a professional pianist and have lots of time to, uh, mm. to you know, learn it. Okay. Um, there's a lot about before I start talking about this piece in the uh, booklet notes there are a lot of there are a lot about cuckoos and we need to know something about their significance especially in in Latvia here but in Europe in general they're we, they're thought of in a certain way that many Americans might not know about and I want to mention it I've got American our American audience in mind because they're by far the biggest audience we have we have listeners from all over the world but the American audience yeah I guess Americans just listen to podcasts mm. they're a podcast listening nation we have far more American listeners than yeah. if, and listeners from any other country okay um, so cuckoos have a significant role in uh, Latvian songs and beliefs they are said to foretell destinies when you first hear the cuckoo in spring it's important to count the number of calls because it presages the number of years you have left to live. I would say that it's not important to count the number of cuckoos. Okay. If you hear a cuckoo when you're hungry or without money in your pocket, the summer will not be profitable. Mm. Man. Glad I live in Japan. Anyway, the cuckoo is also present for is also for brides um, connected with the weeping each bride must endure as she leaves her parental home for life in the wider world among strangers. At least this was the case in earlier days. Okay, cuckoos usually arrive in Latvia in April and stay until summer solstice, which is uh, coming up, I think, in a few weeks, really. Then hawks appear, and there's a superstition in Latvia that says um, that the cuckoos change into hawks, that there's a metamorphosis. Hmm. Cool. You can hear the cuckoos interval in this piece, which I thought was kind of interesting, so... Can follow that, and he through. changes. 
Yeah, he talks about, um, let's see here. The foundational interval you use for the cuckoo is a major third, which is, and a cuckoo's range can be a major second to a fourth. Mm. So he changes them a little bit in this piece. Um, it's usually a minor third, though. The ones we hear in the famous, like the Delius uh, work uh, on hearing the first cuckoo in the spring, that's a minor third. And right. uh, Beethoven, at the end of Beethoven's um, pastoral symphony, what the second movement right. is, I, I'm pretty sure, is a. Uh, my grandma had a well. cuckoo clock, so I grew up with that sound in my ear whenever I went over there. Yeah, yeah. it's that same sound. It's a minor third, right? I, hmm, I guess it is. Um, cuckoo. Cuckoo. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about this. The uh, opening is identifiably the cuckoo's interval, but it doesn't come across as a cuckoo melancholy as it is. I don't think of cuckoos as being melancholy, but here it sounds like that. He's given it a bit of a mood. Mm. In the higher range at about 40 seconds, you can hear the cuckoo as he's usually heard in piano music. I think that's probably a minor third there. Uh, this sounds rhythmically complex despite the spaciousness of the voices. Um, so pianists thinking of playing this would have to be pretty advanced. The material is very somber and minor sounding. The A-flat chorale uh, starts at or an A-flat chorale starts at around 2 minutes and 20 seconds. Remember, a chorale is a set of chords. They're very church-like, sort of thing you'd sing in church. Uh, it's warm and rather comforting in its tone and reassuring phrase endings. Uh, the cuckoo peaks in at 4 minutes and 20 seconds, and his, his motif is heard throughout this section. By the 6-minute, 14-second mark, the music has gotten louder via a very gradual crescendo. And it's a bit marmorial, so like rock-like, solid. At 6 minutes and 58 seconds, there's a sudden key change and change of mood as the agitated section begins. It's really not so agitated, just rather dramatic and tension-building in a squeezed traditional way. The sound on the piano here at this volume is very bassy. Um, and I want to say something about that. The piano, when the piano on this recording is um, playing forte... The dimensionality of it coming out of the speakers is really just awesome sounding. It's not really a natural sound, but it's powerful. It, it really comes out as, I'm not really sure what to make of it really, um, but the, the bass just explodes out of the speakers on the on this entire recording. Um, at 8 minutes 21 seconds, the chorale comes back at a quieter volume. We're back to the elegiac warmth of the chords when we first heard them. And at the uh, 9 minute 20 second mark, we hear the opening material with the cuckoo song again. There's a big dramatic sudden loudening of the volume at the 11 minute mark. Uh, suddenly quieting back to the cuckoo song. It ends quietly with the cuckoo song. A lovely work, but a bit sad. I don't really associate spring like this, but this is, uh, after all, Latvian spring. Hmm. What did you think of the sound in this? Um, I listened to this one mostly with headphones. Um, yeah. I thought I didn't notice anything uh, too unusual about it, although... It, it was very present, though, very Yeah, it's loud, very present in some of the bass-heavy tracks I wrote down as a rumbling. Like, huh. uh, so, it's like getting a, a more than you know just the piano note itself, but some agitation of other surfaces or something like that. Oh, that's in interesting. Room, yeah. I didn't so, notice that. I got it like just booming out of the speaker, really, mm -hmm. and just kind of... Yeah, it, but I, it, I heard it's it very dynamic speakers, and, and up front. Yeah. So yeah, okay. I uh, yeah, I couldn't notice that. I didn't hear it in headphones, so I couldn't tell. Okay, all right. The uh, 
The next work is, uh, this is tracks two through five, is called Cycle. And this was written in uh, 1976. It's Vasque's first piano work, hmm. or maybe his second. I, I didn't really check. Uh, the piece reveals a certain rebelliousness that w- we do not find in Vasque's current works, really. Um, this was an era... All right, well, let's just start. There's four movements. There's a prologue, and it sounds like an atonal work, not a 12-tone work, because there are a lot of repeated notes, and that wouldn't happen in a 12-tone work. They, serial works, all the notes have to be heard in the same order that they're always in. But that's not the case here. Uh, it's jagged and angular with lots of pianistic sound effects, like strumming inside the piano like a harp, plucking the strings. Um, it's very much of its time, really, when this sort of thing was in vogue, um, not unpleasant, though. It's uh, a good deal of the work shimmers as the arpeggios at around 1 minute and 25 seconds. There are extremes of volume, loud suddenly changing the soft, then crescendoing back to loud, that sort of thing. Um, the bass recording on this piano is full-bodied and erupts out of the speakers. And I wrote the word, man, because it, it just kind of <laughs> took me aback. I was like, whoa. Uh, sudden lift off at the pedal at the end to cut off the sound, the reverberating sound at the end. The second movement is a nocturne. It's very quiet at the beginning with a lone melodic figure made up of perhaps three or four tones. And it's very meditative. They start playing in harmony and opposite motion just before the one minute mark. An effect I like. You hear this a lot in Baroque music. The piano is apparently prepared. There's some menu manipulated sounds in the first mm-hmm. minute. Yeah, I like the two opposing melodic lines after the second minute starts. Okay, third movement, drama. Drama indeed. Jeez. <laughs> right from An the extremely sharp-sounding dissonant chord. Now, I don't mean sharp like sharp like a C-sharp. I mean like just like a knife <laughs> stabbing you sharp. It's a crash. That's what I wrote. Yeah. <laughs> a dissonant chord erupts out of the speakers to start this. There are rumbling arpeggios in the bass, and the right hand plays angular material that juts out of the texture. It quiets down a bit just before the first minute, but not for long. The full-bodied recording makes this a neighbor disturber. <laughs> yeah, that's why I had my headphones on for this one. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it may have endangered your marriage, this piece. <laughs> yeah. yeah, not to be shared, this one. Yeah, okay. You want to share everything with your wife except pieces like this, really. Speaking <laughs> of which, um, yeah. today is my wedding anniversary. But, oh, uh, happy I'm spending it with you. <laughs> <laughs> Where is she now? Uh, I don't know. Somewhere in the house here. <laughs> She's somewhere in the house. Well, you make sure you celebrate yeah. after this is done. Yes. All right. Uh <laughs> Not with okay. this piece, though. <laughs> not with this piece. No, you don't want to do this. Uh, yeah. This should, You know how they label things like uh, not safe for work? Yeah. NSFH? <laughs> they should put, They should put like, some kind of, like, label on the album yeah. that says, you know, like, not, not safe for neighbors. Neighbors or, <laughs> yeah, family members, relationships. <laughs> yeah. This is a loud percussive movement. Uh, it, it is very impressive playing by the pianist, though. He manages to maintain different levels of volume in the different voices while playing this material. Um, the movement's called Drama, and I mentioned here, if you want to cause drama in your domestic relationship, play the part from around 2 minutes and 35 seconds to the end when your partner is around. Guaranteed she won't be around for long. Or he. (laughs) 
I think That's we right. can safely say she, because I doubt there are any women listening to this podcast. <laughs> yeah. An eruption of sound that's allowed to fade into the next movement. Uh, I want to say I thought the sound quality of this recording was pretty spectacular, really, at least as far as its impact mm. goes. I don't know about the clarity, but it really did kind of like attack my uh, vital organs. <laughs> <laughs> The fourth movement is an epilogue. Um, with the last tone still fading, this movement starts quietly. Uh, it gets into some bass rumbling, which sounds like the pianist is slapping the bass strings while the sustained pedal is down. Mm. Um, have to see a video to really make sure, though. He also plucks some strings in the piano as he did in the first movement. Uh, the recording and performance really bring out the percussive quality of the piano. The theme being beaten out of the piano strings from 4 minutes to 30 seconds on <laughs> sounds like something familiar, perhaps a Latvian tune, like a folk tune of some sort. It's close to the Dies Irae, but not the same notes. Uh, it it's kind of has that feeling, though. It ends very dramatically, and mercifully, the pedal is released, and the sound stops at the end. <laughs> we don't have to hear the whole thing fade out. Like at the end of uh, the Beatles' uh, Day in the Life. <laughs> that doesn't happen. He cuts it off. Uh, the piece is a, is very expressive, and we should expect that from Vasques. It's mm. subversive and cool for the time, but now we just listen to it for any Vaskian qualities in it, and there are some, especially in the quieter parts. I just want to say that this piece acts as an effective foil to the two pieces programmed on either side of it. They're both relatively quiet, and this is like a wake-up call to prepare you for the next set of pieces, which are similar in volume to the opening work. Okay, the next set of pieces, these is four um, movements, let's say. They're four completely separate pieces that have been joined into like a, a year-long piece called The Seasons. Um, it clocks in at 52 minutes total. These are arranged as a season cycle starting in winter, but they were composed at completely different times. Um, let's see. Um, in this um, piece, um, Vasques is going for his uh, idea that the world is charged with divine presence, uh, with true truth, with perfection that makes sense of all. The pianist says, and Vasques himself, as we know, loves nature because he says there are no lies, petty calculations, or pretense in nature. I would say the same is true in good music anyway. Hmm. Um, uh, Vasques, the composer, says that if all four works are performed, they must be performed in the order that they are in here with the winter coming first. But he says they can be performed separately too. So you can choose one of them and put Hmm. it in your concert program. Anyway, this starts with a piece, uh, the first of the uh, four works composed, 1980, is called White Scenery. So this is around the time of the um, the uh, previous piece we heard, the Cycles work. Right. Okay, so it's only four years later. Uh, Vasque uh, claims that the uh, year begins and ends for him with the color white. And I guess as far up north as Latvia is, that would be true. Makes sense. Yeah, he says every year should start pure and white, doing better works, thinking better thoughts. On a January morning, everything dirty is covered by snow, and we have the year ahead of us. There's whiteness and silence, cleansed of everything. And here we have two sonic images that complement each other. Um, th- there's a feeling this, this could go on indefinitely without change. So this is an eight-and-a-half-minute piece. It starts very gently with a pattern of notes in the piano's upper register. Gently played, perhaps symbolizing the quietness and muffled 
quality of a day with snow on the ground. Uh, that's the quality I like about winter days. The quality I don't like about them is that they're cold. I much prefer <laughs> the hot weather. Um, how quiet everything is, how sound is muffled and doesn't carry well. I like that about snow. Hmm. That quality is captured well here. There are two chords that go back and forth between each other for a while, and the opening motif follows. The material doesn't change much, indicating a staticness to the winter scene. A repeating winding three-note arpeggiated figure takes over for a while, leads us to the end, which consists of a high unresolved note that's allowed to drift off into the ether. The next um, piece, Spring Music, was written in 1995, so 15 years after the previous movement. And it tries to capture the miracle of spring's return. And it really is a miracle, as I'm noticing this year. Um, I live in this Japanese house, and this is the best time of year, spring, summer, and early autumn to live here, because it's just cool. And I like being able to walk around in a t-shirt. In the winter, it's very, very cold here. And uh, I got the heater on all the time. It's just, it, you, know, you can make, you can get comfortable, but it's artificial you know you gotta have all those heaters going um the bird there are bird songs in this and they're not direct quotes like you would hear in messian's music but uh they're vasque's sense of what that bird song is like uh this movement this piece is 19 and a half minutes long so it's pretty long it starts quietly with chiming repeated notes very tentative as though life is tentatively starting to come forth Trills that move to other trills occur after a minute and 30 seconds and eventually burst into winding scale figures. So we're getting the growth of nature here. And we finally arrive at trilling chords at the four minute mark. They sound rich and exciting as though we've arrived somewhere. A calm pair of chords rocking back and forth to each other plays and we get longer figures at trill speed. Sort of like new material is growing out of the trill like branches from a tree trunk or flowers from the ground if you can think of the trill as like the ground. A repeat of these types of figures follows, but they're not the same figures or tonal area. Um, Vasque is using these repeated notes and trills as jumping off point to express the variety of life that comes our way in spring. Uh, this piece, I should say, sounds extremely difficult to play, <laughs> and it's also rather long. There are a lot of quick repeated notes and scale figures that have to be executed without any hesitation, and Zarinsch playing here sounds very spontaneous, and that's quite a, mm. an achievement. It can be difficult to listen to if you're expecting traditional harmony, but if you put your mind in a state where it recognizes the variety of growth in spring, you might have a good image to follow this piece with. There's a lot of busy conjuring, followed by some grand chords and ringing tones in the 13th minute. Gentle chords are heard at 14 minutes and 30 seconds, leading to a slower contemplative section. This builds in a series of crescendos to something more dramatic in the upper register of the piano, and there's some incredible virtuosity regarding the quickness of his repeated notes and other decorating material by Zadinch here. The movement arrives at chiming bell sounds in the 18th minute. Spring is fully here. The last section is very loud and sonorous on the recording. Actually, percussive. This, this recording picks up the percussive quality of the piano exceptionally well, I think. The sound leaps out of the speaker like cold oil off a hot pan. It ends pretty <laughs> spontaneously and unexpectedly and goes into the next piece without a pause. You had to wonder how that would work in if he programmed this piece by itself. 
The uh, eighth track, the third of these pieces, is called Green Scenery. This would represent summer. And this is the latest piece to be written in 2008. So another, what, 13 years after (laughs) after the (laughs) previous one. Long gestation for this idea. Summer to Vasques in Lafayette is spontaneous pagan joy. And this particular work outlines an idealized way Latvia's strong, abiding life force. The piece has two images at play. One is the height of summer, when human beings understand how to rejoice without artificial aids. And the other image is more romantic with the potential for inner development, the fragrance of a meadow in full bloom. Um, Vasques incidentally sees the summer solstice as one of the year's saddest moments. Oh, man. <laughs> I really like it a lot. It means like summer's coming. I don't know. Well, it, 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 you know, it's the beginning of summer. Everything has been achieved and we are on our way in the opposite direction, according to him. Um, <laughs> I don't really start thinking about that until October, though. <laughs> okay. We hear this moment at the end when there's an ethereal pianissimo, but the festive mood returns at the end due to Vasque's faith. Um, this starts with a bold set of bell-like chords. Um, this gives way to a rushing rhythm with rapidly repeated trilling notes underlining a theme in the upper voice. I can only think, if you're a pianist playing this piece, you're constantly playing trills. This must be a real pain. <laughs> um, <laughs> just, they're, they're, it's a 52-minute piece with loads of trills in it that, that go on for long periods of time. This gives way to more bell-like chords with a strong bass ringing out in harmonic support at around 5 minutes and 30 seconds. And the seventh minute, there's a spacious bass and high-end notes playing a gentle theme. Back to chords with a strong bass presence ringing out. I get a lot of bell images out of this particular piece. And the final track, the fourth, Autumn Music, was written in 1981. So this is the second one to be written, just a year after the winter one. And Vasques here is imagining a sunny late September day with translucent cobwebs in the grass. And that's and there's a small repeating motif that weaves through the entire sonata that represents those cobwebs. And they're apparently everywhere because we never stop hearing this theme. The other theme is reflective. The beauty of nature endures, yet the year is coming to the end. Um, and that theme comes across as a monologue. Uh, this is a pretty long uh, movement, too, at 14 minutes and 26 seconds. It starts with tentative repeated notes played very quietly. And this goes on for some time. There's a pretty compelling repeated note rise to a high note in the second minute, resulting in some harmony on the way down. Generally, chords will ring out and repeated note motifs continue over them. Some harsher chords make their way into the musical frame from around four minutes on, only peeking in from time to time as the repeated note material continues. Vasque says the repeated material represents cobwebs in the grass, but to me, this sounds horrifying. It's, it's like you're walking through grass and there are cobwebs everywhere. Like you're walking for miles and miles and miles through nothing but cobwebs because you're just hearing constant repeating notes. Uh, very aggressive and omnipresent, really, these, this, uh, mm-hmm. those um, repeated notes. The music softens towards the end with the more effective theme, more reflective theme, I should say, uh, featuring soft chords and a wide spacing between bass and high notes when melodic material is played. So, in the end, this is a pretty adventurous album. Um, probably not recommended for anyone, so you, you gotta, you've got to want to like uh, push your ears a little bit. Um, we miss the gorgeous orchestration that Vasques gives his orchestral works. His piano music ranges between harsh, especially in his earlier works, to tranquil, but always rhythmically complex. 
It's it's a challenging listen for the most part, but not an off-putting one. Uh, see what you think. If you feel like uh, you're not having a hard day, you want to hear something new, give it a shot. See what you think. Newcomers to Vasques should probably start elsewhere. Check out his orchestral music, especially his violin concerto subtitled Distant Light or the oboe concerto that we talked about last year. Yeah, I have to admit I must much prefer his orchestral music for the lushness uh, and his use of the different tone colors of the orchestra. That said, uh, this was interesting and give me more insight into him as a composer. Right. Uh, you know, just focusing on the piano. Um, as I mentioned, this is really a, a bunch of uh, works of contrast uh, in the different movements. You go from you know, something that's very percussive and abrasive, almost hammering, and then the next movement will be in a big contrast uh, to that, especially in the cycle. You know, you go through these rapid percussive type of uh, things that are almost knocking on your skull to get your attention. And the next piece will be very soft, switching to something a little more melodic. He likes to use these kind of uh, pentatonic, simple type of uh, right, for, melodies. Right, folk quality. Folk he likes qualities. that folk quality a lot, yeah. Everything is quite rhythmic, though. Um, so his uh, compositions are very interesting. Uh, in a rhythmic way. Using the the piano as a very percussive instrument is also uh, kind of interesting. Uh, they do paint interesting sceneries. Uh, the seasons are interesting too. And then if you, you know, as we you mentioned, all the different time periods that they come from in his life, yeah. but then to put them in this order of the seasons, uh, right. it makes it kind of more interesting. So it's an interesting insight into him as a composer, something different. It's worth a listen, but uh, if you haven't heard Vasques yet, you probably want to start with uh, the orchestra. I particularly loved the oboe concerto myself. Yeah, um, yeah and his most famous work is the violin concerto. I just right. just mentioned if people want to start with that. It's called Distant yeah. Light, and it really made him famous when it, yeah. when it was first uh, recorded by uh, uh, Guidon. How do you say his name? Guidon Kremer. I forgot. How, yeah, there's a pronunciation for it. I can't remember. <laughs> <now>. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. Anyway, uh, it'll hold your... Uh, attention and uh, might uh, disturb your neighbors or loved ones, but uh, yeah. it's definitely uh, something different. Yeah, he, um, Vasque is very much um, his own artist. He's a unique composer, so he's mm -hmm. definitely a voice that, uh, he's his own voice. And if you don't like it, that's fine, but, you know, it's he's someone who really stands out, shall I say. He's, yeah. no one sounds like him. All right. Yeah. Well, that's a lot of piano we've gone through already. Yeah, and there's more. But I've got a whole piano jazz program lined up for you here. And, and I think there's an interesting mix of things here, uh, especially because I found a new artist. And, uh, you know, I'm always looking through the lists every day of uh, all new jazz releases. Uh, and then when I hear something that catches my ear, it uh, goes on my list of things to listen to, you know, in a more focused manner and then maybe get on the show here. Uh, of course, the, you know, in jazz, the greatest amount of recordings will be something piano-centered. Uh, the piano trio uh, is, you know, the mainstay. And then maybe we'll get uh, a few other instruments in there around a piano leader. Uh, so there's a lot of things that show up. And it takes a lot to catch my interest. But this one, I was kind of hooked on right away just from listening to snippets of it. And... Um, the more I listen to it, the more I like this recording. 
Uh, now, this recording will be our third featured Hungarian jazz artist. Uh, the first one, we had a, a tenor sax player, Gabor Bola, uh, who we featured a, uh, back a couple months ago on tenor and soprano sax, uh, who was a really impactful sax player, and we liked that. And then uh, more recently, we had another pianist, Peter Garifus, uh, who is uh, active in Finland now, uh, up-and-coming young pianist, and we really enjoyed his recording. And now we've got another fabulous pianist uh, from Hungary with his trio here, the Gabor Horvath Trio, and his new release on Hunia Records called Tricks. And this is a really <laughs> nice recording in uh, every way possible. Uh, so the Tricks uh, is centered around uh, card tricks, uh, which apparently he also enjoys doing and has done these <laughs> since he was a child. So I've got the uh, video for this. It's on YouTube, but you can find it on our Facebook page. And he shows a few of his tricks. And uh, he says that reviewing these tricks and then it takes him back to his childhood and uh, that he hoped the music centered around this idea would bring a simple, honest joy and I think that's a really good description of this album because it's quite uplifting. Yeah, and it's kind of simple as well. It's uplifting. There's a kind of innocence to it. Exactly. And I got to say also, he's Hungarian. I mean, I think of Hungarians. I've read books by Hungarians. They're really kind of depressing. Right. So he's really, he's really going against the uh, the Hungarian grain here, I think, with this. Yeah, so he the other thing he mentions is the tricks like doing a card tricks takes a kind of uh, dexterity of hand you know this sort of sleight of hand and so he tried to incorporate some of that idea of hand movements which feel good to the hands and he felt also relate to the piano playing techniques Very interesting and one of the things that he does with that uh in here is he uses this uh what he describes as a recurring repetitive monophonic note that uh, traces through the compositions. It's sort of a common theme. And that pops up a single repeated note uh, that will either introduce a theme or become like a pedal tone that uh, goes through a progression. Uh, and so that's kind of something to listen for uh, through this. And uh, it's kind of an interesting uh, commonality or thread uh, that goes through this. Uh, so I really found this... Uh, recording intriguing. So his trio uh, here, as we mentioned, the leader and composer of all the music, Gabor Horvath on piano. Uh, there's another Horvath here, uh, Balas Horvath on upright bass. But uh, if you look at the video, you guess that they're not related because the bass player towers uh, over the piano player by uh, quite a bit. I guess it may be a common Hungarian name. And uh, on drums, Attila Galfi. And we start out with a tune uh, called Double Lift. And this one begins with that repeated note. In this case, it's a D. Uh, and that you'll hear this single tone repeated. And Horvath works kind of uh, syncopated chords around that B D that becomes a, like a pedal note. And other little melody phrases uh, comes through there. And then the drums click out a straight rhythm. You're going to hear mostly straight rhythms on this album. Not any kind of uh, traditional swinging jazz, but the grooves are all very uh, different. And there's a lot of diversity in the rhythmic movement, which I also liked on this recording. Um, the bass joins in that 
groove as well. Then it swells into a kind of infectious and uplifting chord progression. As I said, all the tunes on here are kind of positive and uh, kind of uplifting. And the, the way the chords move in this tune is like that. Uh, that fades out and settles into a quieter groove with rhythmic bass. Uh, Horvath starts a solo over that. His melodic lines start delicately, but they build in intensity. Uh, you'll notice here, right away, he has a very excellent rhythmic touch. Uh, right from this first track, goes through the album. Uh, he gets more percussive in the melody line with punchy left-hand chords added in. Uh, the end of the solo trickles into a soft reset of the repeated D with a new uplifting melody built around it. And then Horvath improvises some more on piano around it as Golfie mixes up the beat nicely on the drums. Uh, it slows and softens a little bit uh, to the end of the tune. Track two, Carnival of Cards. This one starts with a funky bass line that's doubled in the left hand of the, of the piano, as well as the acoustic string bass. It goes around a few times, then a staccato and ornamented piano melody is added on top of it. There's a nice little sandwiched chord movement section between those two lines of melody. Uh, first up after that exposition is a bass solo. Uh, the tune has another tight, clicky, even groove to it uh, that Golfi plays tight and light behind the rhythmic bass lines. The piano solo comes out with some fun modal lines to start out and then gets a little bit bluesy. Uh, Horvath mixes up some adventurous harmonic ideas, hard driving rhythmic uh, ideas, and he even gets a little Cuban uh, over this one uh, with his styling. Uh, it's a very inventive and exciting solo on this one. Uh, they go through the melody again, and then they vamp out over the funky bass line for a while uh, to give Golfi some time to rock out on the drums, and he really builds it up until they end on a tension-filled note. Uh, I really like this tune a lot. Uh, another one with lots of energy. Three, it could be beautiful. Uh, the repeating D is back to introduce this one, but it's a ballad melody here. It's got an almost country tune feel uh, to this uh, melody. Uh, Horvath gives it a nice treatment, gentle harmonization, some chiming higher notes as the melody builds up. It then comes down for an extended woody bass solo. The drums and pianos keep it light uh, behind with lots of space for the bass. Uh, the piano solo follows next. It starts out treating the melody gently, builds into more weighty and insistent phrases and chords that mix in some 16th note runs and rocking phrases. Uh, then it's light and easy for a final section uh, to finish it off sounding very pretty. Four is Tricks, the title track. This one starts with an ostinato bass line. Uh, it sets the bass for some light piano phrases uh, and symbols. Ah, the trick is in <laughs> the beat here, uh, as you'll find out. A straight piano chord hits on each of the four beats, and then you're in for a surprise. Try to find the downbeat under the right cup. It's like, uh, you know, one of those <laughs> shell games or something. Uh, tricky accents and counting here, uh, but there's even more changes coming up as the groove slows down and has an really nice feeling of like stretching out dough. Uh, and just when you feel that kind of tension of stretching the beat, it goes off 
on a chase uh, for a faster bit before returning. This is very rhythmically uh, interesting tune. Uh, Horvath solos over it with lots of runs and creative ideas while adjusting his left hand to the evolution of the groove. Great drumming here by uh, Galfi. Actually, the whole trio to be able to, you know, change these tempos and feels all together well. Uh, he morphs the beat and uh, gets a lot of different feels on the drums on this tricky tune. Uh, these guys play extremely tightly together uh, and they give you one more trip uh, through the melody after the solo so you can try to see if you can count this or find the downbeats. Mm -hmm. I gave up after a little while. <laughs> um, I don't know how he uh, wrote this down. Uh, anyway, very fun and tricky number. Track five, Mr. Diamond. Uh, this one has a drum into, intro into a big chordy piano intro as well. Uh, the chords get more rhythmic and syncopated over Galfi's groove before Horvath brings in some melodic soloing. His lines really fly on this one over the tight groove that the drums and bass get going. Uh, some chord vamping here also gives Galfi time to wind up the drums a bit, and then everything stops for some repeated single notes on the piano. Uh, this time he's on uh, G note, uh, for that little repeated idea. Goffey comes back in with some intense drumming. Uh, the bass joins too, and then they return to a, the big rhythmic accordy idea that was expressed in the beginning. Uh, track six, Turn Over Pass. Uh, this is a real enchanting tune uh, with a rhythmic piano melody. The meter seems to change up going from seven to eight. Uh, then it seems to settle in like a nine-beat phrase length on the piano solo. It's very interesting. Uh, just when you think it's one thing, it's changing. Uh, the melody and chord progressions are uplifting, and uh, trying to count it will keep you busy <laughs> for a couple times. Uh, every time I listen to it, I try to figure out exactly what the beat is going on. Uh, number seven, The Tales of the Magician. This one starts with a lower repeated rhythmic G, uh, that starts the fun for this tune with shifting dissonant harmonies uh, before the happy melody emerges in contrast to that uh, little tension uh, in the right hand. It's a great rhythmic interlude of syncopated left-hand bass notes and chords that breaks up uh, the melody sections. It's a uh, driving 6-8 beat marked out nicely on Galfi's cymbals. There's an unexpected modulation in the next syncopated section, and then the groove breaks up for some ominous open interval piano chords. Uh, the heavy groove keeps morphing for a while until the light 6-8 comes back for a softer start to the piano solo. Just before four and a half minutes, the bass and drums drop out uh, on a piano hold, and then Horvath restarts on his own with a new groove. The drums and bass come back in, and now it's got an eight-beat feel, uh, Horvath has an intense solo here, digs in with the rhythms, moving the harmonies around as well. Uh, it ends in a softening chord vamp and then some repeated piano chords that reset the groove to 6-8 once more and head back into the melody to close it out. Lots of rhythmic changes and interesting ideas in this tune. That's the magician at work, I guess. Track 8, Back in Time. This one's a solo piano piece. Uh, it's got just the simple alternating interval accompaniment in the left hand. It mixes longing, slightly melancholic sections with more hopeful strains in the middle of the melody. Uh, the arrangement is simple, and that allows Horvath to bring out uh, the charm of his phrasing and this kind of intriguing melody. Uh, it softens and slows uh, to these kind of 
overly sad final minor chord, uh, which was interesting because the the way the tonalities change in this, you're not sure. Oh, that sounded a little sad, but now it's happy, and so you're kind of brought through these different emotional feelings. But the final chord is uh, got a little sadness to it. Uh, I guess uh, number nine uh, is related to the experience of living through uh, the kind of uh, lockdowns and things of coronavirus called uh, Lonely Robot at the Time of Pandemic. And so I guess this was kind of capturing the routine uh, that life became of uh, doing things uh, at home or under uh, restricted conditions. And robotic it is in a fun way. Uh, There's an interesting robotic left-hand figure to a tight drum groove with some repeated question and answer phrases uh, above in the right hand. Uh, then the next section becomes like uh, even crazier with frantic rising left-hand lines that build up to a more laid-back 6-8 uh, groove uh, for Horvath to chill out on with a rhythmically fun solo. Uh, then the robot and frantic sections return. Uh, this time, uh, Galfi gets to let loose with his pandemic frustrations uh, behind on the drums uh, up until a final ringing piano chord. So uh, lots of interesting, fun, uh, kind of locked-in rhythmic figures in this one. Track 10, Palm, P-A-L-M. This one starts with a sparse ringing piano intro. Uh, interesting intervals that form into a melody. It's rubato and pretty. At about 1 minute and 20 seconds, it takes an unexpected harmonic departure and pauses. Uh, Horvath resets it with a rhythmic feel of slow 6-8 with chords and then the drums and bass join back in. Uh, the melody is rhythmic and stately uh, with the insistent chords underneath. Horvath gets animated in the piano solo with faster lines encouraged by the hi-hat subdivisions of Galfi. There's lots of chiming chords and rhythmic phrases. It comes down softly for another run through the melody and some lighter piano improvisation to the end. And then we're going to end up on track 11, Circles. This one begins with a repeated B note. Uh, it starts the idea for the tune that has a chiming right-hand melody uh, in a slow 8-beat feel with some nice kind of suspended chords uh, in uh, the harmonics here. Uh, just before two minutes, a repeating rhythmic piano figure starts up and Galfi lays down a huge groove on the drums. Uh, Horvath is off for lots of rhythmic fun in his piano solo here. Chiming and rocking figures abound. Uh, it's very joyous. Uh, they bring it down light and tight for the melody again. And then Horvath stretches out the rhythmic figures on the piano to give a slowing effect to the softer ending. And that's it. I really enjoyed this recording. Overall, it has an uplifting spirit from the engaging original melodies. Nice compositions by Horvath. Uh, the rhythmic nature of all the tunes. They're, as I say, they're all real straight-time grooves, but each one is unique that creates a different atmosphere. They do some interesting tricks with time signatures and feels. A lot of the tunes change up and go in unexpected directions. The solos are inspiring. Steady bass work great subdivided drumming from Golfie. Uh, it's a unique and fun recording. It will put you in a good mood, give you a lot to listen to uh, on repeated listens. Uh, unfortunately, I don't see it for sale on CD yet. Yeah, I was going to say. I actually looked it up. I was going to, yeah. because I well, liked it myself. Although the previous recording has made it out on disc, uh, so probably this one will too. 
I will say this is a native uh, DSD recording, 256, and uh, the company and website Native DSD does have it for sale as a DSD download. Uh, so if you have a player that can uh, handle that uh, or a streamer like I do, uh, you can purchase this recording uh, to own. Uh, otherwise, it's on all the streaming sites. Anyway, it'd, I was happy to find... It'd be nice find... to have this. Yeah, I was, it'd be nice to have this on an SACD if they decide yeah, to actually SACD go that way. Yeah, SACD would be great too since it's DSD. But yeah. I was really happy to find this recording. Uh, Horvath's a really uh, technically gifted, but, uh, you know, kind of charming player with nice compositions. And uh, I'm going to look forward to hearing more of his music. Yeah, I think I pretty much said the same thing you said here. Enjoyable, sunny album. Um, it's it's a type of music I wouldn't expect from a Hungarian. They usually brood or joke. <laughs> That's kind of their two modes in the arts. And um, this is just, yeah, it kind of sounds like he's a positive, upbeat guy. It's just, yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of light too, which is nice as well. Yeah. It's a good time of year to be hearing a record like this too, because I think we're all kind of, a little more cheerful now, especially now that the, the pandemic seems to be ending. We're all going outside again. It's a good record to be listening to maybe in your headphones when you're walking yeah. around. Very uplifting. Yeah, check this out for uh, another piano player you probably haven't heard of, but you should definitely listen to. Hmm. Now, uh, number two, I usually stay away from uh, things like this. Um, this is a piano player we've all heard of, haven't we? Everyone's heard of around the world because, uh, well, he was a wonder, wonderkind, wonder boy, uh, child prodigy, uh, Joey Alexander. And, uh, well, what draw me, drew me to this one is uh, it's his debut as a comp composer. So hmm. his first album with all original compositions on it. And... Uh, titled uh, Origin on Mac Avenue Records. This came out yeah. uh, a couple of weeks ago in May. And he's and not a kid anymore, is he? Well, he's, he's 18. Kinda, so he's, yeah. yeah, he's not a kid. He's becoming a young man. But, he's you know, man. that mm. thing about musical prodigies, uh, you know, they, they uh, get a lot of expectations put upon them. Yeah. Uh, now, if you don't know Joey Alexander, uh, he was, uh, he's a Balinese uh, Indonesian kid who uh, had musical parents and learned to uh, play jazz by listening to old jazz records. And uh, he, you know, just had this amazing uh, talent and uh, then worked at it. And uh, he was uh, brought to the attention of the right people. I believe uh, Herbie Hancock and uh, Wynton Marsalis took notice of him. And then he became a sensation. And he's got a few recordings out there. Uh, I forgot what age he actually started out. But here he is um, with all of his own music uh, on this record, uh, Origin. So he's here on piano and Fender Rhodes, the electric piano, and also rounding out the uh, group here. Uh, let's see, on double bass, Lenny Grenadier, Kendrick Scott on drums, and that's the main trio. And we've got a few... Uh, guests on other tracks. We've got Gilad Herxelman on electric guitar tracks 4, 6, and 9, and the great Chris Potter, who we've heard on the podcast a number of yeah. times, on soprano sax on track 2, tenor sax on tracks 4 and 9. Well, this is actually kind of a difficult to put into words <laughs> this, mm. this album. I found harder to take notes on this. Um, Alexander has a kind of uniform style of compositions 
that he's uh, started out with here. Uh, in one way, it gives the album, you know, kind of a tight concept. However, there's not a lot of variety in right. the material. Mm -hmm. They tend to be kind of, I, I could say, almost f folky, reminiscent, bordering on what I think you said, new age. Uh, yeah, not in a derogatory way, though. No. New age meaning like lighter, not like yeah. challenging in a way. You know what I mean? So most of these melodies are kind of narrow in scope as far mm -hmm. as uh, the the range of notes that are used. And above all, they're more rhythmic. Right. Uh in in their presentation he focuses which on which kind of goes with his balinese uh background that's really. what i'm thinking yeah. uh this yeah. could be if you've i've been to bali and if you've heard the music uh there it could be something in that um you know sort of kind of we cycling. do tend to absorb you know the things yeah, around from us own culture children yeah and yeah. the way they become presented is almost starting out with a little rhythmic piano intro of that melody uh, and then what I found is they don't, this album, the way, I don't, I don't know if this is the style he prefers or this is just what happens with this group of uh, musicians, but they sort of move more in a uh, free, spontaneous kind of development rather than uh, kind of uh, structured development. So things kind of go in different directions before you you may have felt like you've heard everything that should have happened with, uh, you know, a solo or something. And, and so I, I just felt a little bit um, unsatisfied by uh, the development of some of his ideas uh, here. Anyway, he is only 18 years old. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, this is where he starts out with compositions. So let's take a look here. Uh, the first track is uh, Remembering. Uh, like most of the tunes on this album, it starts with a rhythmic piano phrases uh, for an intro that's joined by the bass and drums with accents. Uh, a waltz feel melody develops but gets broken up by piano chords. Uh, drum, bass, and piano exchange freely as a new groove emerges and Alexander builds up an improvisation. It's free-flowing, uh, with a bass pulse underneath and expansive drumming under Alexander's rhythmic ideas and punchy chords. Comes down softer with the drums, building up intensity as the rhythmic piano figures build more and more to a final quoting of the melody lick at the end. Uh, so just a trio one to start out. I want to mention that on track one, he's got this, one of the things that struck me is he's got this kind of almost a hiccup sort of... Um motif in his main theme and it's it's clever because yeah. I, I thought this is a clever um uh it almost like a it's hook. a chord hiccup yeah yeah it's like a hook uh that he gets yeah because when it comes it. back you notice it right away right, it's sort yeah. of a nice little identifier you know yeah hmm. uh the next track is called on the horizon uh again uh rhythmic piano opening uh chris potter comes in soon with a soprano sax melody line uh, the rhythm develops a waltzy feel, but has pauses and lots of changes in it. Uh, it goes into a soprano sax solo with swirling lines from Potter and busy drumming underneath from Scott. Alexander is up next for a solo, starting with soft figures over the interesting bass lines from uh, Grenadier. He plays a lot of short bursts of lines that have varied dynamics and articulation. 
Uh, Potter comes back uh, for the melody once more. The tune swells and breathes as it moves along. Uh, it's not locked into a really tight groove. Track three, Dear Autumn. This one has a uh, bass line intro that has a snap to it. Uh, Alexander brings the melody in. There's a lot of nice bass interplay with him and tasty drum filling. Uh, Grenadier has a syncopated feel with his bass lines for Alexander to solo over, and I like how he phrases the solo lines here, setting them up with rhythmic anticipation for each uh, successive line. He brings back the melody and improvises around it. There's some tasty bass overtones added uh, behind what he's doing. It kind of simmers for a while uh, with bass and drum fills as Alexander works out some rhythmic chord ideas until the end. That was Autumn, Dear Autumn. Track four is Winter Blues. Uh, this sort of a sweet, I guess. Huh? Yeah, kind of Another seasonal, seasonal sweet. And then spring comes <laughs> like in the, summer, uh, yeah. Vasques, okay. So uh, we get a funky spaced out piano lines uh, that get into uh, uh, equally funky 6-8 groove with bass and drums. Uh, Hexelman adds some very interesting muted guitar and then Potter joins in on tenor. They play the melody in unison. Uh, Hexelman then goes out on his own first section of the melody and uh, then Potter takes one for himself. Uh, Hexelman follows with a solo. Uh, it's a very interesting style of fluid and muted sounds uh, with a uh, unique tone. Uh, Potter then gets an intense tenor sax solo here. His tone really rips through with edgy phrases on this uh, solo. Alexander has switched to Rhodes uh, during the backing of the solos and is up next for a Rhodes solo. Uh, starting out with some repeated licks, uh, he incorporates rolling figures and percussive attacks, getting the most out of the Rhodes sound quality. Uh, sax and guitar join back in for the unison melody. Uh, and then they all get some jamming interplay, including some scratchy guitar over light vamping at the end. Uh, the next season for track five is Promise of Spring. It's another kind of rhythmic piano melody idea that Alexander develops. Uh, also a 6-8 feel uh, with a nice lifting modulation in the melody uh, for this one. Scott keeps the drums light under here and uh, Grenadier keeps the bass pulse in his lines. Uh, Alexander starts his solo out high and light on this one. Little phrases that set up the next in anticipation nicely as in uh, a previous tune. Uh, it builds up and then eases back into a nice solo arc uh, into the melody. Uh, so even though he's young, I really like the way he can build his solos, um, building up to a nice, not only a climax, but uh, making each phrase uh, lead into the next statement yeah no that he's very melodic too so he's a, he's a, yeah. he's a bit of a crowd pleaser he'll always be popular he's got a he's got a yeah. he's got a an audience built into music like this really yeah probably it's yeah. it's easily digestible hmm. uh next one is summer rising uh here he's on roads from the start Stouts art with some uh, roads chords uh, muted staccato guitar figures from uh, hexelman the guitar takes the melody while Alexander sometimes joins it and other times weaves around with chords and fills. The bass is busy underneath with a syncopated pulse. 
Uh, Hexelman solos with an echoey, rapid, and fluid uh, line style. Scott keeps a rapid cymbal thing going, uh, and Phil's also happening. Alexander returns to acoustic piano for the solo uh, that builds up uh, out of two-hand figures that move together. So he's doing everything uh, with both hands uh, sort of in synchronicity here. Uh, he hints at a kind of fascinating rhythm quote, uh, not completely, but a little bit you might pick up on uh, during the more running lines that climax to some percussive chords. It's back to more melody for the guitar, and then there's a vampy section where the piano and guitar do some rhythmic jamming until it fades out. Track seven is called Midnight Waves. Uh, this one is acoustic piano, rhythmic opening again, uh, but it's a slower number. Uh, there are little trickles of notes splashed over the intro uh, that create a nice effect. It's a simple melody with a few colorful chords uh, tossed in along the way. Uh, it's in four beats, but it changes up with lots of pauses. Drum brushes and bass work delicately uh, work around Alexander's piano. Uh, the bass takes a solo that gets both high and then way down low. And Alexander has a solo that focuses on touch and rhythms, working up to some impactful chords that he ties back to the melody uh, for a softer effect to the ending. You know, it was at this point that I noticed that the moods weren't really there. Yeah. There aren't many moods yeah. on this record. They all kind of, they're all kind of different shades of this same kind of tranquility. Yeah. Sort of, it's very. Know? That's where I got New Age from. That's yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit similar, uh, trance-like mm -hmm. kind of thing. Gets up to uh, what it yeah. adds up to. Uh, track eight, Angel Eyes. This one gets started with a cycle of tentative piano figures. Uh, that form the basis of the composition. There's actually not a lot, there's not really a melody going on in this one. It's sort of mm -hmm. a, just a, a pattern of things to uh, inspire uh, some creativity. Uh, cymbals and pulsing bass give it some more momentum. Uh, Alexander goes around embellishing the figures. The rhythm breaks down and there's a pause after a minute and a half and then Alexander restarts it with more of a definite pulse in his left hand this time. Uh, drums and bass give it more of a harder drive and then Alexander works out a solo with runs and then unexpected two-handed rhythmic figures. And this uh, one, mm. oh, this one fades too at the end as does yeah. uh, Summer Rising and on jazz records especially, this drives me crazy. Right. <laughs> Just get a, get a last chord. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I always have this image when, um, like for example, imagine the Beatles, you know, Hey Jude fades out at the end, right? Right. And I always imagine somehow in my head that, you know, that the, in some alternate universe, you know, they started playing that song in 1968 and like they're still playing it now still because it never it. ended. <laughs> I always hate, I always hate solos that fade out, you know, because you, you always want oh, to yeah. hear the rest of the licks, you know. Uh, yeah, there might have been something good in there. Yeah, you know? really well, there probably wouldn't, wasn't because they wouldn't fade it yeah, if yeah. there was, you know, he probably screwed he it up clammed somehow. this huge note, but uh, yeah, anyway. Yeah. All right, you got two more on uh, track nine, uh, Rise Up. This one, uh, such as this weird ascending guitar run and then muted trickery that started out. Uh, cymbals and a little sax sneak in between uh, some more guitar play. Alexander gets a pulse going on one note uh, that the bass picks up while he adds some right hand piano figures. Guitar and sax then swap some swirling solo line phrases over the top. Then uh, Alexander peppers in accompaniment chords and ideas. Things quiet down, 
before four minutes as the sax and guitar uh, communicate uh, with each other. Uh, Alexander comes back with new rhythmic figures and guitar and sax back him with a unison riff as he plays off some ideas and then pounds out chords to the end while Potter wails out on some uh, intense notes. And then we end up with uh, track 10, Hesitation. Uh, well, this one I thought was one of his best melodies, but there's not much <laughs> uh, to the <laughs> it's tune. Too many. Yeah, it's also it's, him by himself, which is nice, yeah. too. It's kind of... Well, actually, no, that... There is yeah, bass and drums, there is, but yeah. you know, they're very It's quiet. a ballad yeah. with uh, a melody presented from the start by Alexander. Uh, it has more of a nice melodic arc to it. Uh, hmm. You know, it sort of develops more. Bass and drums match the little hesitations uh, that the title implies uh, that are little attractive pauses all along the way. It's really pretty. I wish this one had gone on longer, but it's over before you know it. Yeah. So you know he's 18 he's got uh wonderful talent uh nice touch uh unique style of approaching music but these melodies here uh they have this like little kind of folky or as we said you know from our ears maybe new ag but maybe they reflect some of like the uh music he heard uh, in his own culture growing up uh there's a bit too much sameness to them that left me wanting more variety but his uh, playing is sensitive and interesting. The arrangements have a lot of spontaneity to them. You don't know what's going to happen. Sometimes they might be a little bit too sort of amorphous for my uh, taste. Uh, I'd like to see a little more yeah. development. But uh, some it's all great uh, players here uh, in his uh, ensemble this time. Um, yeah, so, I mean, we'll just see what he continues to do from here uh, in the future. Um, yeah, I feel the same way. Uh, he's got a warm tone and a nice sense of chord mm. coloring that really make him a pleasure to listen to. Yeah, but there just wasn't enough variety. And by the end of yeah. this album, I was kind of nodding off, you know, kind of because it was mm. just sort of, again, maybe too subtle for me because it was just right. all these shades of gray sort of, you know. Yeah. Well, not gray in the sense of, but I mean like that, whatever that emotion was, it sort of uh, varied from that. A little, but not like enough to make. Yeah. It could be our Western sense of contrast that we always want to hear something that's going to contrast with something else. But I mean, jazz is a Western form, and I think you have to do that. You know, so, right. Um, right. it's just too. It, it's a very calm record, I should say. Yeah. If anybody wants to calm down, it's probably be nice for that. But it was a little too calm for me, really. Yeah. Anyway, uh, he's um, he's impressive, though. I mean, I kind of want to yeah, see where he goes. Yeah. You know, I. I heard about him when he when he came out, and then uh, I hadn't paid much attention until I saw that. Uh, well, this was going to be all his own composition, so I thought it might be a good time to check in he, and see. He where draws he was, good. So. I mean, Chris Potter, Larry Grant, oh, yeah. he draws some pretty heavy hitters from the jazz yeah. world. So they're certainly interested in, sure, you know, giving him some support. That's great. Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. he can only, uh, you know, he's he's only eighteen, so uh, yeah. We'll see where he goes from here in his career. Mm. All right. And we're going to end up with an album I was waiting to come out because uh, this is one of the best groups in jazz uh, mm. that's out there now uh, with maybe my favorite uh, pianist at the center, uh, Dave Kikoski. Uh, right. And this is uh, Opus 5 uh, on the Crisscross label with their new uh, release, Swing On This which is yeah. uh, their fifth album together uh, on Crisscross here uh, since uh, 2000. Oh, let's see. Uh, yeah, this is the 
next one after the uh, 2015 uh, Tickle one. And uh, let's it's see been what a while. They have. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. Their progression, uh, Pentasonic, that's another of my favorite ones uh, there. So um, here title. we've got the uh, ensemble. Um, trumpet Alex Sipiogen, who we've heard uh, numerous times on the podcast here. Uh, also, tenor sax, Seamus Blake, uh, we just heard a couple weeks ago. We've heard him a few times. Uh, Dave Kukowski, uh, my favorite pianist, uh, we've heard a couple times. Uh, we heard him in an Austrian group, and then we heard him uh, in a duo with the most heard musician on our podcast, uh, bassist yeah. Boris Kozlov. Uh, the Russian Ron yeah. Carter, as we say. <laughs> we refer to him. Yeah. He's on every recording. Every recording. <laughs> um, and uh, rounding out on here, uh, drummer Donald Edwards. And uh, so uh, this album, I guess they have to uh, get it together be uh, in a special kind of way because I think Scipio uh, Jin has moved off to be uh, Euro uh, based in Europe now. Uh, but things came together uh, to get this one uh, out and I'm glad it did because it's a really exciting uh, album mm. uh, when you get these guys like together uh, yeah great things are going to happen uh, so we start out on this one with the title track uh, Swing on This uh, the composer George Fontenet um, man these horn lines are awesome uh, <laughs> these two these two players uh, they're exact precise and very intense and so the Saxon trumpets swing right into this one with tight horn lines uh, it starts out with this major kind of uh, happy sounding lick but it shifts into the minor melody uh, so you get this big uh, kind of uh, contrast uh, there and out of those uh, melodic lines uh, Sipiogen is up right away for a very energetic trumpet solo uh, Blake is next, uh, swinging hard, getting up to some high squawks on the tenor. Hmm. Uh, back to some horn lines like before, but with some uh, rhythmic and then a big harmonic surprise uh, into Kikowski's piano solo, which starts with uh, a series of single tones that seem unrelated. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah, and then the he just, rhythm, too, is kind yeah. of odd, too. He's off meter. Oddly placed uh, tones. yeah. And then he gives you a long time to think about what you just heard <laughs> before he comes back uh, with some more. And uh, then he starts to build up into uh, a solo of dancing lines and crashing chords. <laughs> really nice one to start out there, Dave. He's that was always interesting, interesting yeah. I gotta say. Yeah, yeah. very interesting stuff. Uh, if you listen, especially in that space where uh, Kikoski gives you time to think about what you just heard, uh, Kozlov is just chugging on that bass underneath. Uh, he's such a really good driving uh, player. Um, Saxon trumpet lines come back uh, to finish things off. Uh, this tune is just full of driving energy. Uh, these guys are mo all monster players. Uh, the next tune is a Kikowski original uh, called Pythagoras. And uh, you're going to have some math problems on this one. I know I did <laughs> anyway. Uh, the drums kick in uh, to Kikowski playing chords. On, right on the beat so everything is right on each beat uh, yeah in it, fact it sounds like a rock beat at the yeah, beginning like right? a rock beat and it yeah. sounds like um, he's the phrases are seven beats uh, but just when you think that's what it is then you'll get eight beats and then after that what where did it go and you have to reset uh, so it's a very tricky kind of uh, meter thing going on uh, 
Over that, then trumpet and sax weave syncopated lines over these shifting patterns. Uh, there's another section of the melody with more rhythmic surprises and an unexpected modal idea uh, mm. in, introduced in the harmony. Uh, Kikoski takes a solo over this uh, seemingly seven beat groove. He keeps it rhythmic with very clear articulation to start things out. Uh, there are a few tension building pauses in the groove during the solo. Um, up next is Blake uh, on tenor, then Sipiogen. Uh, the, me the meter changes and shifts underneath them uh, and the horns join together for another trip around the melody. After six minutes, they set a groove uh, going for eight beats for Blake uh, to solo more over, and then Sipiogen joins him for a final horn arrangement to the end. Uh, so uh, this was a real kind of math problem <laughs> in rhythms, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, interesting composition from Kakowski. Track three, Moon Bay. This is a Kozlov composition. Uh, the horns start this out with kind of a wisping in and uh, moving around each other uh, for an intro to a, this slower number. Uh, it's an interesting arrangement and the harmonies are quite unique. Uh, I found that I had to listen to it a few times to sort of get uh, the pattern in my ears. Uh, so it's very kind of original. Uh, Kikoski has a thoughtful solo that holds back phrases with rhythmic tension. I really like this He's such a great player. He can get this kind of stickiness, like it's not really slowing down, but it gives that effect that it's like underwater or something. Um, Sipiogen has a warm and fluffy toned flugelhorn solo with flowing lines and well-connected ideas. Uh, Blake is up next, uh, more animated, tighter phrases that seem to be reaching for something, uh, kind of long expectation uh, feeling in the lines. Uh, Kozlov is keeping a heartbeat of slow pulses here uh, and does some interesting fluttering fingering like kind of things on the bass mm -hmm. underneath. It's his own tune, though he doesn't solo on it. Uh, the horns <laughs> come back for the melody arrangement and keep blowing on behind some improvisations from Kikoski uh, that culminate in these rising trickling figures uh, as it reaches the final held note of the horns. Uh, interesting Kozlov tune. Uh, track four is a Sipiogen original fermata, means hold a note in uh, music. Uh, Kozlov gets an ominous sounding rising ostinato bass line going. Drums and percussive Rhodes chords from Kikoski join in for a round before the horns come in on another arrangement with weaving melody lines. Uh, it feels like it's a measure of four and then a measure of three beats. I like the different parts for sax and flugelhorn that emerge uh, with the sax riffing low and the flugelhorn has this kind of descending complementing figure. Uh, it's a, it's almost like a difficult trumpet study or something, but Sipiogen just uh, knocks it out with no problem. Uh, Blake solos first over the funky Rhodes chords comping from Kikoski. There's nice tight drum fills and ornaments from Edwards underneath. Uh, Kozlov and Kikoski are really locking in the grooves. They've played together a lot and it shows uh, under Blake's soaring lines here. Sipiogen is flowing with the flugel so flugelhorn solo here too. Uh, he alternates between ripping lines and more rhythmic figures, uh, getting up really high on some long notes uh, and a Freddie Hubbard-like trill into a kind of high rip-off uh, of uh, release. Uh, Kikoski is percussive and funky 
answering his own ideas between his hands to start things out. Then he pounds out hard chords and dazzling runs, um, kind of uh, the highlight piano solo so far on the recording to me uh, here. Uh, the horns are back for more interplay, uh, lines on the melody. Then Kokoski and Kozlov vamp the groove for Edwards to get some funk uh, drumming work in here. The horns join back in, creating some harmonically tense intervals, uh, and then end up with that cool complementary riff idea that we heard earlier. Uh, another fun high energy tune. Uh, I think the next one is probably the most interesting uh, tune to me on the album, and it comes from the drummer, uh, Donald Edwards. It's called Finger Painted Swing. Uh, this is really an <laughs> a interesting composition. Uh, a drum roll comes into some uh, more drumming uh, with Kozlov's bass like freeform underneath it. Uh, some grooves emerge, but they constantly morph, uh, so you're not sure what will emerge. Uh, at about a minute and 25 seconds, a trancy ostinato and slow even beat form. Uh, Kakoski adds some chords, and it sounds like it's going to be this kind of minor modal uh, tune. But then the horns join in, and things get even more interesting. It becomes a loping six-beat 12-bar blues um, with some altered chords, of course. Listen for the brief change to swing on the ninth bar. And then uh, mm. when you get to the final turnaround... Uh, Kokoski lays down uh, some very pretty uh, contrasting chords that uh, they really uh, create a different feel from everything you've heard so far right at the end of the phrase. Uh, but that you're going to hear that again at the end. Uh, Blake and Sibijin solo trading phrases and playing together for a few chorus choruses. It's kind of really intense kind of overplaying each other. It's on the blues form now. Uh, and then Suddenly, it breaks into double-time four-beat feel out of the 6-8, and the blues pattern is tossed aside for uh, a really dazzling Kikowski piano solo. Uh, the horns come back in for a new uh, exciting arrangement with some breaks for drums, uh, then a drum solo that starts softer and has a lot of precise snare work between tom hits. The feel changes up to a slow groove for Kozlov to bring back the loping 6 beat line and the horns return uh, with the blues melody. Uh, it ends up that pretty with that pretty contrasting chord that Kikoski played the first time through. There's so much going on in this tune, uh, mm. sandwiching these blues things and different meter, meters together. Uh, it's really interesting. Uh, track six is called uh, Sight Vision. Seems like <laughs> Sight Vision. It's kind of a, mm. it's sort of a repetitive... Uh, mm. Yeah, this is a Sipiogen tune. It gets a kind of Latin cymbal beat and Rhodes chords to start it out. Another great horn arrangement here. Uh, these guys are just so tight and powerful together. Uh, the lines weave, uh, sometimes together and sometimes diverging. Sipiogen uh, solos first on trumpet and then Blake here. Uh, it has very free rhythmic feel that breathes and flows. Uh, Kikoski has another uh, Rhodes solo that captures that sort of magical nature of the instrument. Uh, the horns weave through the melody once again with a little hesitation before the ending uh, to finish it up. Track seven, The Great Divide. This is another Donald Edwards tune. Uh, piano and bass work syncopated figures of anticipation over tight drumming. And then the horns add another tight arrangement of slinking lines that slow up for a few measures 
before the rhythm breaks into a huge driving swing for Blake to solo over. Listen for the change up of rhythmic feels in this one. Uh, the slow horn figure acts as a transition into Kikowski's piano solo that starts in a minimalistic fashion but then builds into some tension building dissonant figures. He takes a big pause before continuing with some more interesting phrases for an ending. Then the horn figure that sort of signals the transition comes back into uh, Sipiogen's solo. Uh, he gets some tense dissonance and a high note to build tension. Uh, the horn melody returns once more and uh, piano and bass vamp quietly for Edwards to bang a bit before the horns return to finish it out. And uh, we're going to close everything off here with uh, Bobby Watson, uh, great hmm. sax player's tune, in case you missed it. Uh, and oh, <laughs> the intro is very interesting. Uh, step out of that modern jazz thing for a bluesy and gospely piano intro from Kikoski. Uh, it ends down low with a pause uh, before he sends a new funky groove going, joined by bass and busy drumming. Uh, the horns join for a driving but fluid melody. It captures the spirit. If you know this tune, uh, the original Bobby Watson horn lines uh, on here, uh, they, get, they get that same kind of light flowing spirit to it uh it's a great arrangement it picks up energy and it really drives along blake's solos first here kakoski adds uh, percussive chords underneath the sax the beat flows into swing and then back again to funky kind of uh, seamlessly uh Sipujin is really liking the high notes on this tune also <laughs> chromatic uh, things building up lots of dissonance in a solo that sounds like it could cause his head to explode, uh, but it doesn't. <laughs> Kikoski <laughs> is up next, uh, mixing funky rhythmic ideas that swerve into the swing feel and then expanding harmonic figures. He never runs out of ideas. That's why I love Dave Kikoski. That's uh, I noticed that yeah, again here just, in the Austrian yeah. recording last year, too. Yeah. He was like a monster. Just really uh, great. never runs out of ideas. Yeah. Uh, uh, he reaches huge chiming climax uh after which the horns return for another chase through the melody uh they jam out together over pounding chords by kakowski when they reach the end and they bring it down uh for uh, a kind of soft unison riff and a new line that ends it dramatically well yeah. I, as far as i'm concerned it doesn't get any better than this uh yeah, for modern would, jazz agree outstanding musicianship really great creative arrangements that keep you guessing uh action-packed solos tight horn lines all kinds of variety of grooves uh, and different things uh yeah um yeah opus five uh, one of my favorite groups uh all great players uh on each instrument and especially uh dave kokoski i think he's uh, a piano player that you know he's not as well appreciated as he should be uh, because he's just a creative genius and super exciting. Yeah, Joey Alexander should hear this, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's got a yeah. lot of variety. Yeah, I like this a lot too. I, Jeez, I Kikoski, you turned me on to him. He's, he really is like a monster. He's just got yeah. such, such great spontaneous ideas it, and a lot of them. They just seem to keep yeah. coming. Uh, always uh, miraculous. I think I'd probably listen to anything with him on it now. Yeah. I love um, the way he which, just explodes you know he just yeah. in a millisecond he can just hit something and uh yeah. he, he's adventurous too so and this whole album all everybody's just has great solo ideas too it's just yeah. all really fresh sounding and you know it's uh th the way music should be really i think yeah it's probably, it's, this would probably be on the year year end list too i think or so i don't know somebody's year end yeah. list. definitely one of so. ours 
Well, I'm, <laughs> what I'm really hoping is um, uh, I'd love to get Dave Kukoski on for an interview. I've I've written to him twice, and uh, he's a hard guy to get in, in touch with. Uh, he's probably really busy. Now he's really busy now. Yeah, yeah which now, we got right? him in the, You had in, to get all those the, guys when they were locked yeah, down. Yeah, locked down <laughs> in the pandemic. Uh, yeah, oh well. Because I have a really good story about uh, Dave Kukoski, and uh, I think it would make for a great uh, beginning of the interview. It goes back to That'd my college cool. days. But uh, anyway, we'll see what we can do. But I'm really hoping that he gets uh, another solo release out uh this year too because i like to hear him you know just in a trio format too yeah i just want to say one complaint uh this this is out on a cd and here in japan oh, yeah. they, they i think amazon in america wants like 25 dollars for this cd and in japan yeah. it's like three thousand four yen yeah because that's with the exchange rate now the yen is very weak yeah man i can't buy a cd for that much it's too much 35 dollars the price yeah. guys yeah i know <laughs> <laughs> it's too bad. I want this one because I have all, I have yeah. these other uh, Opus Five ones uh, in right. my collection, but uh, I'm gonna have to wait on this one. I know, right? What are we gonna yeah. do? I don't know. I want this one though. I don't know. Maybe a bonus will come my way. A little preview for uh, the listeners. Next week we're gonna do uh, trumpet. Uh, it's okay. trumpet time in jazz, and in jazz. also we have a trumpet yep. classical, trumpet classical recording one. too. Um, we just did. Uh, not, I can't tell you which episode it is without looking it up, but we just recently did the Alex Sipiogen, uh solo release, uh-huh. and now he's here on this. He's got another solo release that's came, come <laughs> Are we out. we going to do that one next week? No, <laughs> I'm not going to do it. He's just too close, you know, um, but that's on the positive. But we'll eventually get to it, yeah. I guess. Okay. Also yeah. with Boris Kozlov, I'm pretty sure, Yeah, and that's on... Um, yeah, um, the Positone with uh, Art Hirohara, another pianist we really love. You know, but I mean, yeah. man, the, the, these guys, uh, Kozlov and Sipiogen, they're just really cranking out the releases. Mm. Amazingly uh, productive, uh, cranking things out. So anyway, I, I'll mention it again next week because I, I just don't want to put you know the same musicians back to back in uh, releases. Just so you right. know, uh, if you like this trumpet player who's a real monster of a player. He's got something new out on his own too. And uh, more Boris Kozlov, the Russian Ron Carter, as we like to say. Uh, he's just uh, always recording everything and it's really good. Uh, and we always like to hear Art Hirohara. So I'll get around to that uh, eventually. But uh, I think with the jazz next week, uh, I've got a long trumpet list and I'm going to pick out some obscure things uh, from around the globe that have some variety uh, in there. And so it should be interesting. Okay. Sounds great. And there you have it. Episode 66. Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. So if you like the podcast and you've stayed with us uh, till this time, please do like or subscribe on whatever platform you're on. Uh, check us out on Deezer. Uh, you'll get the playlist for next week. I'll get that up tomorrow. Uh, we sort that out early so you can check out the music one week early. You can also come to our Facebook page and I put the playlist there as well with the episode and I'll try to get up some videos uh, if there are any available of the artists that we're going to feature for the next episode and uh, before we go out uh, as always thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our neon glowing logo makes everyone want to come in the door when they see adult music I wonder what's going on inside yeah well, what's happening is good music is what's it's happening just good inside. good music. That's what's going yeah. on inside. So I'm looking forward to next week, Mike. Uh, 
we'll trade our lists uh, in a matter of hours and get working on the next one. Right. It's going to be a busy week. Because, well, I've already heard most of the Sibelius uh, symphonies one. We're finally getting to this. It's mm. a four CD release that we've been working on for some time. I'm still not done with it, though, but I'm close. Yeah, you know, I'll put them on while I'm uh, doing other things to go through everything again. It's going to be kind right. of a... I know those works well, so it'll be, you know, yeah, how is the overall... The yeah. overall feel, I don't know so. all of them well, as we'll find out, but some of them yeah, I know exceptionally well. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, a lot to look forward to. So uh, stay with us. Check out that uh, episode playlist. It'll be up tomorrow. And uh, we'll see you again next time for episode 67. Mm-hmm.